How's it going, buddy? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 159 of X-Lapsed, and uh, hey, it's Hellions Day, and that is one of our very favorite days. Uh, we're going to hop right on in. This is Hellions number 9, which had an April 2021 cover date. The story's called Funny Games, colon, level 1. Written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia, colors David Curiel, letters VCs Ariana Mar, design Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Amaro Basso White Sabalski, cover price $4, and this one went on sale February 3rd of 2021. Now, before we get into it, um, oh, that, that name of this issue here, Funny Games, huh. Anybody ever see that movie? Uh, you know I don't watch movies, but I have seen bits and pieces of this one, of the original, uh, not the not the American remake, though I've, I haven't heard that the American remake is... All that inferior. I, I hear good things about both. I just only saw bits and pieces of the original. It's uh, one of those, one of those movies you see on lists of like you know fifty most you know disturbing or messed up movies that you have to see. Which I like reading those articles and I like seeing little bits and pieces from movies. I just can't sit still long enough to watch the entire thing. But Funny Games is definitely deserving of being on those lists here. It's pretty horrifying stuff. Having to do with um, some of the more baser fears uh, that we might have. Things like a uh, home invasion, which, I mean, that's doesn't get much scarier than that. Um, also, the torture of a family in their own home. Uh, these, uh, these poor victims are made to participate in humiliating and painful funny games by the, uh, the intruders here. And I do wonder if there's any significance to using this title. I would have to assume that... Maybe so, um, and we won't flip until to the last page of the issue just yet because that might give some of it away. Now let's get into the issue itself. As we open, it's tea time at Bar Sinister. The Mister is having a cuppa with Jason Wingard, Mastermind, who is a fella I don't think we've seen a whole lot of uh, during this Hoxpox era. And hell, you know, now I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure we've seen much of him since he died of the legacy virus back in the early 90s. He was among the group of psychics, which also reintroduced uh, Amal Farouk during the Empire cash-in. I believe it was Empire number 2. Empire X-Men number 2, I should say. Which uh, was another one of those characters who I felt deserved better treatment for, like, a reintroduction. I mean, Mastermind was a part of some of the most seminal X moments in history. You know, Dark Phoenix and stuff like that. Anyway, after chatting about a scheme that they're planning on putting together, and how stinky Sinister's cape is, uh, we gotta remember that that weirdo Jamie Braddock had just worn it. And from the looks of him, I'm not sure he's the most hygienic uh, character out there. 
Anyway, um, our man, Mr. Sinister, takes a sip, and it turns out that the very, very expensive tea was poisoned. Now, we watch as our man writhes around on the floor, expecting the man who just poisoned him to help him out, before passing out at Wingard's feet. Weird. Uh, Though, you know, I suppose we ought to remember that we're dealing with Mastermind here, so really, who's to say what's real and what's fake, right? Uh, From here, our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters today include Havoc, The Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wild Child, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, and Mr. Sinister. Back to comics, and we shift over to Nanny's, where uh, little Peter's being fitted with his new Orphan Maker armor. And uh, unfortunately, we do not get to see him out of the armor here, so we don't know what's going on under it. Now, as he emerges, he's like in a he's like in a wash, you know, he's like in a plasma thing or something. He complains that the armor hurts because it's too tight. Nanny observes that he's grown and suggests that maybe later, if she has the time, she'll do something about making his armor a little bit more comfortable. Peter wants her to do it now because, I mean, dude's in quite a bit of pain. To which, Nanny threatens not to do it at all. Peter apologizes and follows her into the adjoining room on her ship. Now this is where she's keeping that baby right bot that she found last issue. She tells Peter to leave her alone while she changes because, uh, well, he's too big to watch her change anymore. Ew. Scene shift to Purgatory. Now I didn't realize that the Hellions HQ had a name, though I am kind of starting to find out I'm not nearly as perceptive as I thought I were. Anyway, they're in the midst of training. Havoc is doing some bench presses when he's approached by Empath, who offers to spot him. And by spot him, he means use his power to make it seem as though he's pushing down on the bar, which rightly ticks Alex off. To which, Empath says he's just trying to nudge Havoc enough so that the fun him comes out. Meaning the Alex that we saw go ape back in Hellions number one before he joined the team, or before the team was even put together. Alex tells Manuel to bug off and leaves. Now off to the side, Grey Crow tells Wildchild that it's time to eat, which causes Kyle to lash out and take a swipe at him. Grey Crow holds him at bay and comments that Wildchild hasn't found his she-wolf yet. You see, Wildchild really wants to start mating since his return to the living. It seems as though the object of his affection, or erection, I suppose, might be Quanan. John tells him he's gotta relax. Quanan then interrupts to inform the team that they just got a new assignment because there's been an incident. And so we shift over to the point where our team are being addressed by Stick in the Mud Sage in her April O'Neil trench coat. She goes to show them some footage from the New York City Krakowin Gateway from that morning, where Mr. Sinister was attacked and abducted by agents of Zeno. Now, Zeno is, uh, of course, that Court of Owls knockoff crew that uh, we see over in X-Force, of course. The Hellions, upon hearing that their leader's been kidnapped, well, they laugh and laugh and laugh. It's really quite a a funny scene here. Um, If you remember how we talk about things like comic timing, uh, Zeb and Steven definitely have it here. Sage is annoyed that the team, excluding Quanan, who's always serious, are, you know, having this laugh. Again, she does. She goes to show them this uh, footage, but to her surprise, it's gone. Now we'll eventually find out that there was never, you know, any footage to begin with, since, well, you know, mastermind. Sage tells the team that Professor X is adamant that they go and retrieve their missing leader, and Quanan agrees to do the thing. 
Info page. It's a memo from Sage to presumably the Quiet Council making the case for the Hellions to undertake this mission. It's pretty clear here that she's being manipulated by Mastermind as it speaks at length about how well the Hellions' rehabilitation is going. And, I mean, how much they love their leader, Mr. Sinister, and want to see him return safely. This memo is stamped approved, and so away we go. Next stop, New York City. Our team emerges from a gateway. Empath notes that things seem a bit frosty between Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Peter says she ain't his nanny anymore and nearly spills the beans on her new Wrightbot baby. She hushes him before he can, however. He also says he's going by Pete now instead of Peter, which Empath thinks is really, really cool. Sarcastically, of course. They meet with Wingard, who was their point of contact for this mission. He welcomes them to New York and guides them over to a waiting limousine. During the ride, Nanny and Call Me Pete argue a bit more to the befuddlement and entertainment of their teammates. Quinan chats up Mastermind, and that's when the other shoe drops. Suddenly, the Hellions are no longer in a limousine. Now they're on a boat. Then, they're on a plane. Quinan realizes that Wingard is, uh, you know, screwing with them and goes to stab him with her psychic blade. But she's frozen before she can do anything. Mastermind reminds them all that he's in control here. He's in charge of their perception and their reality. He's basically their god in this moment. He tells them that they have absolutely no idea what's real. I mean, for instance, was the sage that sent them on this mission real? Was their mission to the home for foundlings real? Was their time spent in Araco real? Hell, is Krakoa real? Is anything real? It's actually pretty great. Uh, Great Crow and Havoc, they go to attack, but John's gun just melts in his hands, and Havoc's, you know, energy blasts, they turn into birds. So, uh, wildly ineffective, I suppose. Now, next thing we know, the Hellions are free-falling from the sky, and then they smash down to the ground in bloody puddles. Then, reality sets in. The Hellions are just KO'd, having been put through the mental ringer by Mastermind. Then we're introduced to our actual party host and the guy Wingard is working for, a man called Arcade. Now he's accompanied by, I think, Ms. Locke? Is she still a thing? It's that, that woman with really weird bangs. It's her. Um, unless there's another woman with really weird bangs and uh, I'm just a little out of the loop. But we see that Arcade's here with the woman with the very weird bangs and also that he's got Mr. Sinister held captive. We close out with a Nightcrawler quote, and we're out of here. Next episode, King in Black colon Marauders, number one. So we're getting back into the King in Black story, and I've done a little research on the King in Black story, and it looks like we're going to be visiting it a few times more than I expected to, because, uh, well, there's a little story in Savage Avengers that's going on that uh, might just warrant our attention. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. For now... Let's talk about this wonderful issue of Hellions here. I mean, first, I mean, holy smokes, are we actually getting some classic X-villains in our X-Men stories again? I mean, X-Men characters versus Arcade and Mastermind? I mean, I can't say they were ever my favorite, but wow, how refreshing is this that they're not not fighting just armored Russians or guys in suits? I mean, that's just fantastic. Or, you know, fantasy characters with swords. Um, let's take this apart bit by bit here because I don't have, like, a main takeaway for this one. This was just a series of really, really good scenes that, uh, 
you know, we talk when we when we cover X Factor. Uh, one of the things that I really cheerlead for that book is the fact that every character in the book gets a moment. And I mean, not every book does that. Even the books we like, not all of them do that. Um, I mean, a book like Marauders that we all we all really really like. We don't always get a scene with Pyro. We don't always get a scene with Iceman. We don't always get a scene with Bishop. So there are characters in those in that book that just serve to show up when they show up, right? Here, everybody gets a moment, and uh, it's just like X Factor, where everybody in that book, all the the entire cast, gets a chance to get their stuff in. I mean, let's start with Sinister. Um, Sinister here, he's got his little uh, tea party with Mastermind here And they managed to fit in a whole little aside about the cape And you know, when we started this volume here And uh, we were, actually when we started, I believe it might have been one of the Hoxpox issues uh, You know, House of X or Powers of X Where Sinister and his cape were kind of a thing, you know Sinister's fancy cape, how much he loved this cape And how much uh, everybody really coveted this cape, or at least he thought so and initially, I thought it was annoying. Like, all the cape talk felt like a pandering sort of, like, cheap pop to play up sinister sassiness. Like, the kind of the kind of scenes that I would refer to as, like, retweet bait. It's like, haha, lol, random sort of thing here. But I gotta admit, I'm really, really digging it at this point here. Um, just for the attachment he has to this thing... Um, Mastermind says it smells, and he's like, yeah, I know, but I could put it to air. I could let it air out, but that would mean I couldn't, I wouldn't be wearing it. I mean, that's just hilarious that he is that um, enamored with his ridiculous cape. It really just speaks to to the sinister that we're getting to know and love here. I, I really thought that was cool. Um, Orphan Maker. Orphan Maker was the, the character we saw in the next scene here. Um, got some questions. I'm not sure how old Peter, or I guess Pete, is supposed to be. I don't know if that's something that's commonly known. Um, before he died in Arako, or in Amenth, or wherever he died, was he actually a child or a preteen? Like, was that what he was? Was he a child in armor? And now since he's come back and he's bigger, does that mean he's like a late teen or maybe a young adult? I don't know. I mean, if that's the case... It kind of makes his uh, relationship with Nanny all the more horrific, doesn't it? Um, I mean, if he was a child, um, let, let's let's play this th- this thing through here. If Orphan Maker was a child, and if that's really how this is going down, did the Quiet Council know this when they assigned him to go on these weird missions with Mister Sinister? Did they knowingly send? This broken child off into a very, very dangerous, um, violently therapeutic situations? I don't know, but it's uh, troubling if that is the case. Um, now, Nanny changing her egg costume. And I take this to mean that Nanny is able to get out of her costume. Can't say if that's a new wrinkle or something that we, you know, that's already been established. Um... It's just another reminder I gotta get on the X-Lapsed Origins Nanny and Orphan Maker series of articles pretty damn quick here. Uh, Havoc. Havoc and his fun self. I mean, this is one of the uh, biggest mysteries in this book, right? Havoc's mental situation. We don't know. I mean, we've got our theories about it here. Um, Evan has discussed whether or not maybe malice is involved. I've considered maybe um, 
Maybe he's not as broken as he's being led to believe he is And is being put through this uh, Through these situations with the Hellions In order to break him for some sort of reason Which I, I really can't figure out why they would do it But uh, you never know, right? Um, I'm glad to see that this is getting some attention uh, Because this is one of those things that could easily fall off the radar here But uh, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing how it eventually plays out here wasn't a long scene, wasn't a huge scene, but just the exchange he had with Empath was good enough for me. It was good enough to really just let that subplot, you know, bubble in the background, as uh, as we were wont to say. Uh, Grey Crow being the sort of, uh, so in a way, a sort of a keeper of Wildchild here. He, Wildchild kind of bounces between him and Quanan in as far as who he'll, you know, who he'll kneel for, who he'll heal for, I should say. Uh, wild child feeling as though he's perceived as weak, which in his current state of wanting to sort of come across as an alpha, or maybe he has like a primal need to be an alpha. Uh, we hear about the she-wolf that he wants, which I think is supposed to be Quanan here. I think Quanan is who he's got the proverbial hot pants for, but his perception that he feels like others find him weak is... A kind of self-awareness I don't think he had before dying in a month. So I, I, that shows great you know, maturing of the character, where before he was more primal and bestial, where here he's, so, he's self-aware enough to where he realizes that he's looked at differently than the other members of the team. I really like that as a way of growing the character, and I think that it opens up a lot of interesting possibilities moving forward. Now let's talk Quanon here. Um, we had that meeting with the Hellions and Sage, where the Hellions kind of giggle at the fact that their, you know, beloved leader is uh, is missing or has been abducted. And as you know, Quanon has been known to do for this series, she is taking things seriously here. She knows that uh, without Sinister, um, she may never see her daughter again, or may never be able to understand what happened to her daughter. And so it's in her best interests to take this uh, mission as seriously as possible and get Sinister back as safely as possible and as quickly as possible. I thought that was really well done here, though I did love the rest of the team just, like, really having a laugh <laughs> at Sinister being kidnapped or abducted or whatever it was. Now, Sage, despite not being, you know, a core member of this Hellions book, uh, I feel like she was the right character to use for this situation. She was really the only character we could use for the situation in that uh, she had this information she needed to pass along, but it was gone. And it troubled her that it was gone because, I mean, she's sage. She's super anal about a lot of things here. And the fact that somebody was able to, to her mind, uh, you know, break into her system or break the code and erase footage or delete footage, it really got under her skin here. But... Kind of just uh, let it go because we don't know what's real and what's fake here. We don't know how much control she's under or how much control anybody's under in this book, which is just another really, really good part about it here. And I wonder if there's some sort of a Hellfire connection here. Uh, you know, Jason Wingard, a member of the Hellfire Club. Sage was Tessa in the Hellfire Club. She was a mole of Professor X back in the day, retroactively, of course, but... I do wonder if there's going to be any sort of Hellfire connection at play here. Uh, that could be an interesting path to take. Now, finally, Mastermind's illusions. And not only the fact that the characters don't know what's real, but neither do we. Like, were they ever in a limousine? Were they ever in New York City? 
Did they ever have a meeting with Sage? Or was uh, Sage just a character that Mastermind knew they would trust and made them visualize it? The fact that he asks those questions of the team makes you think that they were thinking it, or are now thinking about it, and they don't know what's real. Um, I think that was very, very well done, and I don't know what his deal is, or his arrangement is with Arcade, but uh, I'm certainly looking forward to finding out what that is. I just can't tell you how fun it is to actually have um, classic X-Men villains here for the first time in, in quite a while, it feels. It's refreshing, and uh, I mean, this book is great all the time, but here um, it takes the old traditional X-Men uh, formula and kind of turns it on its ear, and uh, overall just a really, really strong book here. Uh, I say it every time we cover this book, if you're not reading Hellions, read Hellions. <laughs> you won't uh, you won't be uh, disappointed, I can almost assure you of that, but uh, that's all I gotta say about this issue. Before we cut out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. And we're actually going to be talking about Hellions for both of our uh, letters today. We're going to start with Damien talking about Hellions number eight. He says, Hi, Chris. I've fallen a bit behind because of various real-life stuffs. I hope this finds you well. I'm continuing to respond slightly out of order, as Marvel Unlimited seems to have slowed down on releasing the X-Books, but I'll always be able to respond to Hellions because that one gets my actual money. Well, Damien, it's great to hear from you. I hope all is well for you. Uh, he continues, Of course, responding to Hellions is very difficult. How many ways can I say that I love this comic? It's wonderful, and I can't wait to see what happens next. That is the problem, isn't it? Um, it's sometimes these books that we love just so much that it's hard to say anything about, because outside of the gushing, I mean, what else can you do? Because this is just a wonderful book. It's fun Every time out, it's just really, really strong stuff here. Uh, Damien continues, Some very interesting stuff in the feedback section of this episode. Every single, every single thing you said about creators on social media made sense. It could harm sales to pre-block someone who likes your work through a blockchain, but I still can't fault creators for using them. Social media is very intimate. It follows you through every single part of your life. A personal account far exceeds your working life, and therefore I think it exceeds the demands of your professionalism. I think it could be psychologically damaging to read certain kinds of responses online. Blockchains seem like a reasonable protection to me. You specifically mentioned following Ethan Van Skyver as the kind of thing that might get someone blocked, and I think it's important to note how racist, homophobic, transphobic, and misogynistic his Twitter is. At the point when people were using blockchains against his followers, they would have been fully aware that he was leading hate campaigns against other creators and editors. You were not accidentally following a racist homophobe, as he was open about his hatred. Now, this is where I think I might have, uh, comics godwinned myself. Um, I probably shouldn't have mentioned Ethan Fanskyver as an example here, because he is kind of the... He's kind of the debate-ender, isn't he? He's kind of the extreme of the extreme here. Um... But the fellow we're talking about in question here, Al Ewing here, um, he was blocking people that were following people that aren't even in comics here. And uh, we won't go too deep into that because that's divisive and dicey and it's uh, something I don't like anything of. <laughs> so we'll just not do that here. Um, Damien continues, No matter how public a figure, you, are still, you still have a right to protect yourself from seeing hate speak. I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I agree 100%. I, and I'm projecting here. I just don't think Ewing is doing anything. He's, I don't think he's protecting himself from anything. 
I think this is kind of a making a passive-aggressive statement against people who uh, might have a different worldview than his, and, and not, not even including things like hate, just things that disagree with his own worldview. I'm not a political guy. Um, I haven't really wanted to vote for any president that's been president since I was old enough to vote for president. I'm really just not a political guy in, in the slightest here, but... I think it was Michael Jordan who had once said, um, you know, Republicans buy shoes too. Meaning, like, he's not going to speak out against any one side because it's in his best interest to sell everybody everything he's trying to sell. And I wish there were more creators who were like that here. Whether you uh, lean to the right, lean to the left, you got to realize that there's... There are folks out there with completely opposite worldviews as yours and not predicated in hate, no matter what CNN or Fox News will try to make you believe. So I see his, uh, his deal here as being kind of a passive-aggressive and weak uh, way to uh, deal with things. I'm not a fan of it. And as a content creator and a struggling content creator who spends so much of his free time doing something that so few people care about, <laughs> to, to see that there's someone out there who people want to engage with because they really enjoy his work, blocking them because maybe they voted a different way than he did. And uh, that's just unfortunate to me. I think it's very, very, it's a very sad state of affairs. And just another, uh, just another indictment on how close we are to these creators. We don't need to be. That's kind of all I got to say about that. Um, Damien continues. On to, on to more interesting things here. Um, he says, on to your analysis of the sales figures. I was a little surprised by some of the figures. I expected X-Men to be at the top. It's the lead book, even if it's not the best book, but I was shocked by how high Wolverine was placed. It genuinely is consistently the weakest X-Book, but still is the second highest ordered. I wonder how much of that is comic shop owners ordering based on pre-existing biases and how much reflects customer demand. I suppose it could also be down to Adam Kubert being the only actual superstar artist working on the X-Line. Maybe they think they can sell it to the people who are nostalgic for the 90s. Now, one of the more interesting things about how high Wolverine is placed here, especially, let's look at October's numbers here. This was part of the uh, X of Tens uh, crossover, of course. And Wolverine number 6 was the 11th highest ordered book, um, shipping between 85,000 and 95,000 copies here. Now, that one led right into X-Force, did it not? Or was straight out of X-Force, right? It was one or the other. I don't remember which, which order they were in here. But if we, if we look at this, the X-Force book from that month, it was still pretty high uh, compared to what it was before the crossover, but it only shipped 40, between 48,000 and 53,000. So maybe like half of what Wolverine ordered here. So that tells me that um, there might be some sort of existing bias there because if you were that invested in Wolverine's story, uh, you'd probably buy the X-Force issue that continued it. And the fact that only half as many people did tells you that there's just some, there's still some fight in that old dog, right? There's still some cachet in, uh, in Wolverine for some reason. <laughs> um, uh, Damien continues. I was completely surprised that Cable was at the bottom of the orders, not just because it's a good book, but because I would have expected it to be a more sellable property than New Mutants or Hellions. When I heard it was getting canceled, I presumed it was due to the end of the storyline and not because of low sales. Interestingly enough, and I haven't done a whole lot of research on this, but uh, it seems like Marvel is not even trying to sugarcoat this one. 
This isn't like, oh, well, this is this is the end of Cable's story for now And so we're ending the book This is like, no, nah, it's getting cancelled <laughs> Which just doesn't happen very often Marvel's usually like masters a spin where Oh yeah, this was always meant to be in a nine and a half issue limited series It's very, very strange that here it's just like, nah, it's gone <laughs> It's getting cancelled um, Damien continues Of course, we do have to take all sales figures with a pinch of salt as you repeatedly said, they, these are the shipped numbers. Plenty of comics end up unsold on readers' shelves. Or retailers' shelves, I'm sorry. We also have to consider digital sales. Books that are low sellers in comic shops can sometimes sell exceptionally well digitally. I know that was said of Squirrel Girl, for example. And, of course, the publishers make more profit on digital sales as they don't have to endure the costs of printing and distribution. It's quite difficult to see where the line is as we're not given details, but it is entirely possible that Marvel could generate more income on 500 digital sales than 1,000 physical sales. You mentioned the old 100,000 cancellation figure that used to get bandied about, but the financial model has completely changed since the 80s. Amen. Yes, (laughs) it absolutely has here. Um, We don't have newsstands anymore, for one. Um, And and the funny thing is, it's that that 100,000... Order is kind of a it's kind of a soft number because the newsstand was able to return unsold copies, right? That was the whole purpose of the direct market, was that hey, we have this closed system, but nothing's returnable. And the few times that things have been made returnable, it's been major, major news, like the new 52 or rebirth or stuff like that. So you know, what's, you know, what is it, the bird in the hand or the two in the bush or whatever, right? Uh, with newsstand, sure, you can ship 100,000 copies. They might only sell 30,000 and the rest get their cover ripped off and sent back to Marvel for a refund. But with the direct market, everything is counted as uh, sold, paid for. Whether or not that shows up in a reader's long box, Marvel does not care because they got their money. Uh, the digital figures. Now, this is something that, you know, you mentioned taking things with a grain of salt or a pinch of salt, but with the digital numbers, I think we need the entire shaker. Now, I'm not suggesting that Squirrel Girl isn't selling or wasn't selling huge digitally, but, I mean, these the industry is so, um, hmm, it's got an inferiority complex. And so anytime anything even moderately positive happens, it's shouted from the rooftops. How often do we see a book the day before it even ships? We get a we get an article on Bleeding Cool or CBR or whatever saying that it's sold out and it's gonna be it's gonna be heading to a second print and it's like it hasn't even come out yet. And you know damn straight that you can go to any comic shop in your in your town, city or state the following day and see dozens of copies of this thing on the shelf. How is it sold out? And yet the industry will tell us that it's sold out because it's sold out at the distribution level. Here we have digital sales, but they don't want to share the numbers with us. Something tells me if these digital sales on books like a Squirrel Girl, like a whatever, if they were as phenomenally high as they like us to think they are, we would have solid numbers because they would be shouting these solid numbers from the rooftops. I think about things like, uh, now this isn't digital, but it's, you know, a little similar in that we don't get the numbers for this. The DC giants that were, uh, the DC 100-page giants that were going to all the Walmarts, right? 
All we would hear was the news that you can't find these things anywhere. Walmarts were selling out like crazy. They were just gone. These books were hard to find. They were on eBay for like five times the price. And yet every Walmart I went to had them stacked up as high as they could stack before the the stack fell over. We never got solid numbers on these things. We were just told time and time again how great they were doing until they were quietly canceled, (laughs) you know? I feel like, I felt like then and I feel like now, if there's something worth celebrating, the industry is going to celebrate it. Again, I'm not suggesting that Squirrel Girl isn't doing great in digital or isn't doing great at the bookstores, the few bookstores that are still remaining, but I feel like if it was doing exceptionally well or well enough to justify its existence, we'd have some, we'd have some solid numbers and we don't, we just don't. Um, Damien continues. There's part of me that wishes we got some more information because as someone who works in retail, I love digging into the figures and working out what makes what, but it's probably a good thing that the things are a little, that things are a little more opaque. We know that people stop buying books when they know they're going to be canceled. So it's probably best that we don't know when things are on the verge. The downside is that people look at newly announced books with the expectation that they will probably get canceled and therefore are less likely to invest their time and money. This is definitely a current year comics problem. Um, Marvel and DC both, they've established a pattern of behavior for canceling books for, like, no organic reason. Not especially because sales are low, right? But because they know if they cancel a book at issue six and then follow it up four weeks later with yet yet another number one, it'll sell a bit higher. I mean, it stands to reason. We have the data (laughs) that'll prove that. This is short-term thinking for immediate gain. And this is the worst part about this, is this is the sort of thing we used to all ball up our fists about, but now we're kind of just okay with it. We've been beaten in a submission, and we just accept it, and we play the game. When Marvel cancels, say, Squirrel Girl at issue six, and then four weeks later has the next volume with number one start, and uh, a lot more people go out and buy that number one. It's, uh, they know they know us well enough to know how they can exploit us. And as such, um, the more they do this, uh, the law of diminishing returns is there. The, the, the sales for a number one are going to be better than a number six, but not as much better as it used to be. And I think with every subsequent relaunch, that that's going to narrow even more as we move forward here. But I feel like comics are kind of the uh, they're kind of the entertainment equivalent of a of like a circus now where they're just going to like up stakes and, and get out of town one day. We're just going to all be like, where did comics go? Oh, they left, you know, because it's just not going to be a viable uh, outlet for uh, Disney and or Warner Brothers anymore. Uh, Damien continues, ultimately, it seems supremely unfair that the best books are not the best sellers, but then I suppose we can't all agree on what are the best books. Anyway, until Nanny's robot baby marries the Scarlet Witch, make mine X-lapsed. Did we just spoil WandaVision? Whatever a WandaVision is? I I don't know. Maybe we did. But you're right. Um, It is unfortunate that uh, books like Cable or Marauders or Hellions, you know, the books that we enjoy the most on this show, or I should say I enjoy the most on the show. I don't want to speak for everybody, but it kind of stinks that... uh, they, you know, it's not reflected in the sales charts here, and it's funny. I was uh, when I started looking at the sales charts, I decided to go through my own archives to see if there is any consistency with uh, the sales of the books here, and, and I try to take into account like, 
you know, people who have listened to this show for a while, I mean, we're up to uh, like almost 160 episodes here. That's what, like uh, at least 100 hours of this program has been, uh, you know, committed to digital tape here. But I part of me wonders, like, hey, if I'm more positive about a book and people know that I'm more positive about it, they're more likely to listen. Or if it's, you know, like a Fallen Angels Day back in the day, or an Excalibur Day, where I'm more likely to not like it, are people less likely to listen? Or are they more likely to listen to hear me complain about it? Part of me wonders, like, what goes into listening? And I tried to look to see if there's any sort of pattern here um, as it relates to sales and, uh, I guess, book visibility, uh, interest in the book in general. And there is a little bit of correlation there. On Marauder's Day, a book I love talking about. On Hellion's Day, a book I love talking about. Listens are lower than they would be on a Wolverine Day. Or on an X-Men Volume 5 Day. It's very, very strange that uh, the sales or the downloads or listens almost echo the sales. And I suppose it stands to reason that it would, but it's... uh, I don't know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Cable Day doesn't get a whole lot of listens, comparatively speaking. It's it's interesting. It's very interesting. But I want to thank you so much for uh, writing in, Damien. I've missed hearing from you. I hope everything is good with you, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, next up, our friend Andrew Franklin also talking about Hellions number 8. He says, There's some saying regarding storytelling and not just giving the audience what they think they want. I was ready for for a just-like-old-times return of Cameron Hodge, but what we got was even better than that. Zeb Wells does a great job of bringing Hodge back in a way that honors all his stories before this. The immortality, the techno-organic virus, and what I guess is some lingering religious zealotry from his time with the Purifiers, something I had to look up because I didn't read that period of X-Men, and the fire and brimstone stuff confused me. The funny thing there is I know, I'm pretty sure I read... Uh, Hodge being with the Purifiers Was that during the Who was that, Kyle and Yost X-Force run, I think that was it I totally forgot about it, and I just assumed that they Conflated him with uh, Reverend Striker <laughs> But, uh, no, that's an excellent Point here um, Very good job of bringing Everything together here, it's almost Reminiscent of, and I mean this is Totally a tangent, but uh, The Keith Giffen Doom Patrol. If anybody is familiar with that run here, he was given the task of making everything that happened with the Doom Patrol, including a full-scale reboot at the hands of John Byrne, make sense (laughs) in a linear way. And he was able to pull it off. Uh, It's too bad that, like, you know, a year and a half into his run, DC decided to flush that cosmic toilet and uh, hit us with the new 52. But Andrew continues... In keeping with the history of Hodge as this constantly changing antagonist, I like the idea of the Hodge mind as a corrupted code infecting the smiley robots. I hope this wasn't just a one-off thing. Having Hodge as this abstract machine infection that helps drive the mutant machine dystopia we've seen is a cool use of his character, and it works nicely with the AI antagonism that was set up during Hoxpox. 100%. 100% true. I mean, it just makes so much sense. Uh, Hodge's connection to the phalanx, um... Just everything about him, his immortality, as you mentioned here, uh, stands to reason that he could still present a threat to our characters uh, a thousand years on. So I'm actually surprised it's taken him this long to get him in the book, and I'm also kind of surprised that this isn't in the main flagship book of this line here. It's uh, off in Hellions, which, as we just mentioned, not as many people are reading as they perhaps should be. Andrew continues... 
My read of the scene where the smiley robot hesitates in killing Psylocke was that the robot scan showed them that the genetic difference between mutant and human is so small that there really isn't much of a difference at all. I like this inclusion for two reasons. One, it was the first showing that the Smiley's AI didn't inherently hate the mutants, and it was only the Hodgemind's illogical racism that caused them to. Two, it cuts both ways, and although the mutants see themselves as distinct from humans, they're really not. I like this because I personally do not like the mutants and humans are a separate species view. And for the whole Krakoan era so far, I've taken it to be the creative team's view on the subject. Maybe this is a little seed for the audience that while the mutants see themselves as distinct from humans, they really aren't. And that's a great point here. Um, we have talked a bit about um, the you know weird ethnocentrism that's growing in the Krakoan era here where the mutants see themselves as so different from the humans that they no longer wish to follow man's law, right? Uh, things like that. I do like this as something that goes both ways here. Um, the robot doesn't see them as being different. Humans certainly see the mutants as being different, as being lesser than, right? But nowadays, the mutants also see the humans as being lesser than. It's not just the bad guys calling, them, calling humans flat scans anymore. Now we have just this weird... Ethnocentrism stemming from uh, all of the uh, all the characters on Krakoa. So very very interesting. I do hope that this is something that gets picked up again uh, somewhere down the line here. Uh, and wraps up with all in all, just another great issue of the series. So until we get the dramatic resurrection of Clive, <laughs> make mine X lapsed. Yeah, we do. Alas, poor Clive. How how little we we knew ye. It's a it's always a sad day when Sinister loses a crony in it. But thank you so much for writing in about our good old Hellion series here. It's always so much fun to hear from you and to talk about this book. But that's where we're going to leave it today. If anyone out there would like to talk to us about Hellions or anything else, please feel free to do so. You could find me quite easily on the internet. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, and you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, where due to a uh, hellacious uh, few days, I have not been able to uh, continue the X-Lapsed Origin series as a daily thing. It's still it's still happening. It's still going to be happening very, very soon. It's just uh, it hasn't been a great few days here. So um, I apologize for any inconvenience, but we'll be back uh, with... Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian soon enough over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, you can also check out xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com if all you want to see is the xlapsed stuff because that's where a lot of it is. Or all of it is, I should say. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. You can chat us up over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. A lot of fun conversation going on there right now as we speak. Or as I speak, I suppose. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation sites and devices and all that, all that hoo-ha. If you want to hear it, it's there for you. Thousands of hours of comics commentary. And I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
This is Chris. Welcome to the uh, landmark milestone 175th episode of X Left, where I have a. I really don't have anything special planned. Um, it's nice that we're getting another uh, multiple of 25 episodes. Those don't come every day, so it's uh, it's neat that we got here. Um, I've said it before. I didn't. I didn't think we'd make it. You know, uh, 12 episodes going all the way through uh, Hoxpox here, but. Uh, here we are, 175 episodes in. We are well on our way to 200. And if if the rumors are accurate here, I believe when I hit 100, um, might have been Damien who suggested that uh, the Hickman run or this Krakoan era would probably take us to around episode 400. So we're almost halfway there. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, we'll probably go a few more episodes on that since we are integrating things from the wider Marvel Universe at this point that happen to kind of commingle with our uh, with our Krakoan books here. But we're getting there. We're really, really getting there. And I want to thank you all so much for uh, joining me on this, uh, on this fool's errand of trying to become X-relevant again. It really, really means the world to me. So let's get into today's book here because it's a goodie. This is Hellions, number 10, had a May 2021 cover date. Uh, it's called Funny Games Part 2 Hitbox, written by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia. Colors David Curiel, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro Basso White Sabolsky, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale March 3rd of 2021. Now, before we get into it, let's talk about the cover for just a sec here. It's designed to evoke an old Marvel cover. It's got a cast-filled corner box, a spot for the old-school UPC code, which, rather than being replaced with, like, a black-costumed Spidey head, has a black-and-white picture of Mr. Sinister's face instead. Sounds good. It's pretty cool-looking, and it appears to be an homage of Uncanny X-Men number 146. It took me a minute to realize that, but uh, as soon as I did notice it, I, you know... Couldn't not see it. Um, one thing, though, I mean, if you're going to do this, why not just go all the way with it here? Give us the, you know, Marvel Comics group banner along the top. You know, make the art look a little bit retro. I don't know. But uh, really nicely done here. Um, a very cool callback, especially with, uh, I don't know if I'm just not as perceptive as I give myself credit for, or uh, if this is a very subtle homage. So I guess mileage will vary. We open, as is customary, with a mostly blank quote page here. This is Nightcrawler advising us to all face our demons, and uh, that will play out during this issue. Well, Nightcrawler won't be in this issue, but uh, demons will be, or facing one's demons, I suppose. Now, our story opens wherever the Hell Arcade has Mr. Sinister, all shackled up in a power-dampening chair. And they have a pretty fun back and forth here. 
Arcade asks some very simple questions, calling out for an unseen other to confirm. He says, Mr. Sinister's hair is as greasy as it looks, confirm. And a voice from somewhere else says, confirmed. Also, Mr. Sinister is helpless in this chair, confirm. Confirmed. Sinister then tries one himself, looking for confirmation that Arcade's teeth are veneers. The unseen other hesitates and asks Arcade if he ought to confirm that. And I mean, it's it's all about that comic timing that we talk about so much in this book. This is this is funny stuff. Um, uh, likely much funnier than I'm explaining it to be because, uh, unfortunately, I really don't have comic timing. But uh, we make do with what we have. Arcade then starts slapping Sinister around until Old Essex asks him, like, "Hey, hey, hey, what what's going on here?" Right? He pulls a Mister Belding on us. Arcade reveals that he's got him here because Sinister has something he wants. Well. He has access to some things that Arcade wants. Uh, as we all know, Sinister's got clones. He's got oodles of them, and uh, well, Arcade wants some. And so, Arcade used Mastermind to trick Sinister and bring him here. Or, you know, poison Sinister, I suppose. While Arcade monologues, we can see on the monitor bank that all of the Hellions are engaging with robots in separate rooms. We see Quanon running from one. Grey Crow is sitting in a jeep looking at one. Wild Child is swiping at one. Empath is, well, he's sitting in front of an empty plate while licking his chops. No robot there just yet. Nanny and Orphan Maker are just standing by, and uh, this will all come around and make sense, so no worries there. Sinister suggests that Wingard, uh, mastermind, probably isn't the most trustworthy guy, right? It's like, uh, hey, he, he double-crossed me, Arcade, he's gonna double-cross you as well. Jason then tells him that, uh, hey, I just double-crossed you before you had the opportunity to double-cross me. So it's, uh, <laughs> we know no honor among thieves here. Arcade then reveals that he knows for a fact that Mastermind won't betray him because, well, he's got Jason's daughter, Martinique, sitting in a torture device just in case something like that were to occur. Worth noting, the Mastermind's daughter's gimmick is pretty confusing. As I don't think when uh, Chris Claremont created this one, he knew that there already was one. Uh, Claremont created his during Extreme X-Men, around the time of the turn of the century. The other was from the Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, Wolverine Gambit miniseries from 1995, where, you know, if I'm not mistaken, she was actually tied up with Arcade there to begin with. To make matters more confusing... We're told that this character, who's in you know bondage, uh, right about to be slapped around by torture devices here, is Martinique. But it's actually the other one, Reagan, uh, the blonde. So uh, uh. now Reagan, we last saw her being rescued from the Sidri-infested Xavier Mansion back in Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler number one, and before that we saw her arriving on Krakoa in House of X number five. Um, I mean, I don't know if one hand knew what the other was doing in either of those books, but. Um, Gotta figure this is probably just an error or editorial oversight. And even though Hellions is probably my favorite book of this line, it's still something I probably ought to mention. Uh, now, I mean, not counting Sobolski, there are three ep- editors assigned to this book, so this sort of thing probably shouldn't happen, right? I don't know. Anyway, so yeah. Arcade wants Sinister to create clones to fill his murder world with. But from here, we go to a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters today include Havoc, 
Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wild Child, Psylocke, Empath, Great Crow, Mr. Sinister, Mastermind, Arcade, and Miss Locke. We jump back to comics, and we are in Room 3, where Psylocke is living out a normal day as a young mother in rural Japan. She has a daughter, we know that. She excitedly runs over to her and asks if she can have some pudding. Quinan agrees, and uh, while the child washes her hands in preparation of the dessert, we can see the body-shopped version of Psylocke maniacally grinning in the weeds. Now, we know this is like the body shop one because she's got those like a clockwork orange gimmicks on her face, like keeping her eyes open. You know what I'm talking about. From here, we go to room two. John, Craig, John Gray Crow is in a war zone, maybe Vietnam. It looks Vietnam-ish. Now, he's just killed a gaggle of enemy combatants and doesn't appear to be handling it all that well. He's not very comfortable with the fact that he had to do that. His fellow soldiers, however, pat him on the back and they tell him he did a good thing. And they also tell him that he's a good man. Grey Crow takes pause before uh, revealing a half smirk. He's, he's, you know, okay, this isn't bad. Off to room six, empath be eating. Manuel is shoveling food into his mouth while his mother reminds him that the dentist wants him to eat his veggies. Empath reminds her that he made the dentist run the drill through his own head. Mom is aghast and tells Manuel to behave because, well, they've got guests. And the guests include everybody who he's ever hurt. Empath takes a look at the crowded room and smiles. Next stop, room five. Wild Child watches Wolverine and Sabretooth fight. Then he reveals himself, which scares them both away. Wolverine in particular says, Oh, hell no. It's Wild Child, the big dog. And he's gone. Over to room one. Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Nanny is suddenly overcome with children to look after, which makes her so very happy. But it makes Orphan Maker feel only more neglected. But then, a second nanny appears, one who will only take care of Call Me Pete. So, everybody's happy. Finally, we go to room four. Havoc approaches Madeline Pryor, who is mechanicking on an airplane. He's surprised to see her, and she, she tells him that she's always been here, and uh, she's never, ever going to leave. And they kiss. From here, we go back to reality. Sinister, Arcade, and Locke are watching Alex make out with, and perhaps bang, a robot mannequin. Sinister suggests that this is too weird even for him. Then, Miss Locke goes to touch Arcade's shoulder, asking if it's touching time. He's kind of embarrassed, and he slaps her away. Which makes me think that maybe Miss Locke might be a robot mannequin herself. Um... And from the looks and sounds of it, her primary function might be to, well, touch Arcade. Seeing Havoc plowing the bot might have made old Arcade feel a bit self-conscious, especially with the repulsion that Mr. Sinister showed when, uh, upon seeing it. At this point, Sinister's like, okay, screw it, I'm gonna help you. He's gonna, he's gonna help Arcade, he'll give him all the clones he could ever need. And Arcade is sort of pleased. I mean, he's getting the answer he wants, just not the way he wanted to get it. You see, he wanted Sinister to resist so that he could be justified in torturing him some because he wants Sinister to have to beg to let him help just in order to stop the torture, to stop the pain. And so Arcade decides that, hey, you know what, I make the rules here, what the hell? I'm just going to torture you anyway. 
And so he tilts the power dampening chair back and prepares to perform some horrific dental surgery. We jump back to Psylocke's room. Now she's serving up some flan for her daughter, but first she's got some questions. You see, everything feels a little too perfect, right? It's a little too comfortable here, and from what we know about Quinana, she's not good with comfort, you know? She's got one question primarily. She asks her daughter what her name is. What's your name, child? The child can't answer. She doesn't know. Just then, the body shop Psylocke bursts into the scene and attack, and our Psylocke freaks out and psychically calls out to John Greycrow. This takes us back to John's room. He's shocked by Quinan's call, and he drops to his knees. He looks over to the enemies that he just killed. Instead of them being rival soldiers here, they are the Morlocks, who he helped slaughter during the mutant massacre. And, I mean, we only know this because the Legion lookalike Erg is among the pile. From here, we go to an info page, and it's an internal memo from Murder World. And if we read through this, it seems like Arcade is probably not the best person to have to work for. Back to reality, and Arcade is still in the process of plucking teeth out of Sinister's head. Miss Locke reveals that there's something odd going on in the rooms. And Arcade, he's tired of it. He's like, okay, just go tell Mastermind to kill the Hellions. I don't care. I'm having too much fun playing dentist, and I don't need the hassle or the distraction. From here, we jump back into Empath's room, where he learns that his powers don't work here. He finds himself surrounded by all the folks he ever hurt before. Um, none of them are outright recognizable, just normal folks. They are armed, however, and their weapons will work here. Then, Wildchild, he is now being beaten up by Wolverine, Sabretooth, and I think Romulus. Uh, that whole Romulus thing is a little bit foggy to me. Then Havoc, who we see in bondage at the feet of Maddie. Quanon runs from body shop Psylocke. Grey Crow is now being eaten by Morlock zombies. Nanny and Orphan Maker are being swarmed by those children. And back to reality, Arcade then tells Sinister that, uh, okay, I'm about ready to let you beg to help me right now. And Sinister confirms that he will help. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, more Wolverine guest appearancing in the pages of Runaways number 34. But that's a discussion for another day. Let's talk about Hellions here. Uh, should come as no surprise, I love this issue. I mean, it is Hellions. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book here. Um, let's talk about the perhaps tropiness of, uh, of everything we're experiencing in this story here. Um... The X-Men being singled out to deal with their worst hopes and or fears is something we've probably seen dozens of times before, right? I want to say, upon Chris Claremont's return around the turn of the century, it felt like a bi-monthly occurrence. And no matter what book he was in, whether it be Uncanny or Volume 2 or New Excalibur or Exiles, he always had this bit where he would separate the team, have them face off against their worst fears, overcome them. It's, you know, it was not, not the greatest of times. So with Claremont, it was either face your worst fear or facing off against X-Men doppelgangers. Um, Claremont will go to that well pretty often. It's tropey, right? And it sometimes feels like a cop-out. Here, however, it actually works. It fits into the story that's being told here, a more lo-fi um, murder world where 
rather than relying on you know the giant pinball machine, it's more about you know psychological horror here and on a much smaller scale, but equally as devastating and traumatizing. So it, this sort of thing makes perfect sense to be featured here. Now let's go through these scenarios one at a time here. Quanon, I mean, it's more Betsy stuff, right? It, it's you know we've seen a lot. Every time we see Quanon, it's it's Betsy stuff. And a lot of times we see Betsy, it's Quinnon stuff. However, this is the one instance where it actually makes sense for them to pursue more of it right in this issue. This is all in Quinnon's head, right? And it allows her to ask many inconvenient questions like, hey, which one of us is more real, right? Quinnon was here in an unreal situation, away from her fears and worries. That in and of itself worried her. Things were too perfect. She knew the scenario she was in was way too good to be true. Her perceived paradise is infiltrated by the body shop Betsy. Now that kind of actually parallels what likely happened during her real life. She was replaced. She was inhabited. She was infiltrated. This works. This works. Though, it must be said that uh, we've got a Quanon vs. Betsy bit coming up in Excalibur, so maybe after this we put a moratorium on this for a little while? Maybe we don't pursue Quanon betsy all the time? <laughs> maybe we just take a break from it? Please? Um, New Grey Crow. Uh, he has issues being uh, a bad guy during, I'm assuming, Vietnam. Very interesting. His fellow soldiers all bolster him up. They treat him like he's a hero. A hero for doing something morally objectionable, I guess one can argue, in a situation wherein he had no choice but to act. He smirks when he's complimented, perhaps given a measure of peace with the decision that he was forced to make. But then, he sees his victims as the helpless and mostly innocent Morlocks, who, as a legacy marauder, Grey Crow took part in massacring. We see a bit of like nebulous causality here, and uh, I feel like it worked. You know, this isn't the face-a-dark-version-of-yourself version of being stood before your worst fear, right? That's the, usual, that's the usual way we see this sort of story play out. This has more to do with truly accepting and digesting one's actions, or playing out one's deepest and perhaps darkest fantasy scenarios, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Let's do Wild Child. Him being the big dog is, uh, is pretty great. Uh, having him scare off Wolverine and Sabretooth feels quite appropriate Especially when I feel like Kyle can be, and sometimes is Viewed as like the store brand version of both characters And we've seen um, since Kyle's re- weird resurrection a few issues back That he's got a bit of a alpha growing in him, right? And as such, this fantasy is pretty perfect, right? Plus it gets all the Wolverine completionists to have to pick up a book Maybe they wouldn't have otherwise So there's that as well Uh, Empath stuffing his face was Interesting I guess Um, This one didn't feel like a fantasy That was playing out so much Though I guess from his sick smile Upon realizing that he was surrounded by everyone He'd ever harmed We might assume that it was I gotta say I feel like this was probably the weakest Of the visions Um Nanny and Orphan Maker, they were together Uh, Nanny was able to live out her fantasy uh, Initially In that she found herself surrounded by babies That she could raise and nurse and protect Poor Pete was neglected 
which is what's been going on in his life since his weird resurrection, and Nanny's as well. Seeing this, Mastermind sends a second Nanny in, who will only pay attention to Pete, and so everybody is happy. Finally, we've got Havoc. And his desire to be submissive to Maddie Pryor? Hey, I'm I'm not going to kink shame. We've all got our stuff. Uh, But uh, all joking aside, this was a pretty great scene. Maddie saying that she's always been there and won't ever leave was very strong and and heartbreaking in a way because we know in reality that uh, she's gone. And if uh, the Quiet Council has their way, she ain't ever coming back. Going from that back to reality, where it's revealed that Alex is just grinding on a robot? It's strange, yeah. But it led to an equally strong scene with Arcade and Sinister. I mean, Sinister seems skeeved out by Alex making out with a robot. Just then, we're given the distinct impression that Arcade's own Ms. Locke is a robot because she starts rubbing on him only to be slapped away. Maybe Arcade took Sinister's cringing a little personally, which uh, only makes sense here. I mean, who... Who could love Arcade, right? Ugh. Let's talk more about Arcade. As mentioned, his new venture is a more low-tech murder world here. Less giant pinball machine, more straight-up psychological and physical torture and horror. I like this. I like this in a lot of ways here. Because um, not only is it is it fitting, and it's an easy way to keep Arcade relevant without... Like, he still has the hokiness to his character here because I think deep down we know that, uh, we can tell that this shift is being made more out of necessity than choice here. The way he dismisses his earlier take on Murder World is pretty telling, if you ask me. It's almost like, uh, you know, he's protesting too much. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to waste my time with any of that stuff, despite the fact that that was kind of the whole game. That was like Arcade's whole gimmick was these silly Rube Goldbergian sort of murder devices and just um, flat-out fun and horrific toys that were being played with. But times are changing. Times are different, and so he needs to uh, scale back a little bit, you know? Uh, Utilizing Mastermind and eventually some black market clones seems probably like the right way for Arcade to go. Speaking of clones, um, (laughs) I love the fact that Sinister simply agreeing to aid Arcade just wasn't good enough. Uh, Arcade wanted to torture him, and so despite having little to gain in doing so, he does. I mean, that's uh, a... Mr. Sinister, as this weird and just skeevy character (laughs) who is in these odd positions... This is a sort of Sinister I never would have imagined seeing, and especially I wouldn't imagine liking uh, growing up in the 90s here and having that one version of Sinister. I never would have thought that uh, we'd see this and that I'd I'd like it as much as I do, but uh, gotta admit, it's funny seeing Sinister being tortured. I I mean, what does that say about me? That's, uh, (laughs) That's pretty horrific, but all I'm picturing is like the Hellions coming out, seeing him tied up in this weird dentist chair with teeth missing and just all cracking up laughing. You know, that's that's the scene that I want to see here. I don't know that we will, but uh, from the last time when Sinister was abducted and the Hellions had a good laugh over it, I think we could use another one of those. Um, I tell you, uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful book here. It somehow walks the tightrope between gory and cartoony, uh, it doesn't commit to either completely, but somehow nails both, you know? 
A lot of that is, you know, the comic timing of Zeb Wells, but Steven Segovia here is killing it, killing it on the art here. It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, a blend of horror and comedy, which is very tough to pull off, um, but does so very, very well. Makes it look easy. So, as I say, every time we cover an episode of Hellions here, if you ain't reading this book, you ought to be, because it is a good time. But that's all I have to say about it. Before we cut out of here, let's hop into the mailbag. We got a letter from Jesse, and he says... Wow, 175 episodes in. I checked my Variant Ripoff Guidebook, and that tells me that this is a die-cut cover episode. So I got the scissors out, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this one out somehow. I just hope I don't shatter my, my screen here. Jesse continues. I want to thank you for including other appearances of X characters throughout the 616 as part of your reading goal. I'm a little behind on a few titles out there, but keep up with the X books when they come out, and this makes me dig those books out. The output at Marvel right now may be a landmark in how good and creative it is. Daredevil has been one of my top books to read. Thor, Hulk, and Runaways have also been at the top of my pile. Spider-Man I'm way behind on, but I've been enjoying that. Avengers is a confusing mess right now with the Phoenix stuff going on. You mentioned with Excalibur how you feel like you missed an issue, and that's how I feel about Avengers. I'm about a two-thirds Marvel zombie, so I'll get them and read them. I need to get in and read more Black Cat, even if there will be a huge crossover. And I mean, come on, I'll get all of that too. I can't wait to crack open my Savage Avengers and Strange Academy, having only read a few of these, and see how much they tie in with the X stuff. Magic is the new Wolverine. And I tell you what, I've heard so much good stuff about um, a lot of the stuff coming out at Marvel nowadays here, and uh, I only wish I had more time. To invest in in checking it out and spreading my wings a little bit here, I mentioned during one of the recent off the beaten path episodes that uh, every time I read a non X Marvel book, I get like all sort of giddy and excited and uh, not Gideon, uh, no no giddy and excited. I'm certainly not Gideon, but uh, I get excited and I want to know more and I want to read more and it's some of these books are just plain fun. Books like you mentioned there, Runaways, is just plain fun. Black Cat, fun. You know, these books are, are just, they're not trying to be anything more than what they are. Um, I've heard plenty of good things about Daredevil. I just haven't pulled the trigger on it just yet. I've heard a lot of good things about Hulk, but I am a little uh, trepidatious about hopping into that. Thor, I've never had any interest in. <laughs> I've never had any interest in Thor. Uh, Spider-Man, I come and go with Spider-Man. I'm sure I'll be back sometime Sometime down the line, and then I'll leave again. I'll come back. Spider-Man is kind of like, uh, he's my Marvel Batman, you know, where I don't have to always read Batman. I'll, I'll come and I'll go. Uh, whereas when I'm in a DC frame of mind here, I'll be like all about Teen Titans or Superman. But Batman is eh, every once in a while. Spider-Man's the same way. I can, I can come and go and enjoy it or not. It's just uh, one of those books for me. Now, Avengers is one that I was kind of considering, like, I, I flipped through a few issues of it. And yes, it, it's it's a mess. I mean, it feels like it's a confusing mess. Then again, I'm speaking out of turn because I haven't read any of this volume. But from what I have looked at, and that does include the Phoenix stuff, it's just like, I don't know what any of this is. <laughs> I don't know who any of these characters are. And I mean, it's Jason Aaron. I love Jason Aaron's work. So I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's quality. But uh, it's, 
a bit of a, a bit of an investment, right? Um, things like uh, Savage Avengers, I picked up a few issues of that from the uh, from the bins, and I'm also we're going to be covering the King and Black stuff on the show very very soon. But I mean, I'm flipping through these, and it's Jerry Duggan, and love Jerry Duggan. The early issues have Mike Diodato on art, and he drew a scene with Wolverine fighting Conan. And I mean, I, everything in my head says I should hate that. I should hate the fact that they have Conan fighting Wolverine. But I couldn't look away because it was just so gorgeous. I mean, it looked amazing. So I mean, there's so many books that I'd love to, I'd love to give a try to here. Um, Cole over in the uh, Facebook group said to try Strange Academy because it's really good. I wanna, I wanna try it out. I figure. Maybe when I'm caught up, maybe when we're caught up with X-Labs and it's not, I mean, there will come a time where this show isn't every day, you know, whether that's by necessity or because we caught up and there just aren't any more books out and I haven't gotten my DCBS order yet, there will be time eventually. I think we're probably about two months away from that time being a thing, but it's coming, it's coming. So maybe when I have uh, some more free time and uh, I'm not so underwater with uh, the to-do list for X-Lapsed, then I can maybe spread my wings a little bit here. Books like Daredevil, I, I mean, it's Chip Zosky, who I don't know very well, but uh, his X-Men Fantastic Four was a lot of fun. So it's like, I think I want to try it. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes here. Uh, Jesse continues. What have been some of your favorite and least favorite stories in Hox Pox Rocks era so far? As much as you dislike the space stuff, I like the New Mutant story with the Shi'ar, and I didn't mind Brew becoming the King of the Brood. Have we seen Brew since? He was hanging around with the Agents of Wakanda before this story, but I don't think we've seen him since. Hellions is my favorite book, and every issue I read just makes me love it more. Ex of Swords was a little long, but I also loved most of that. It gave Polaris the boost she may have needed to make her win the voting, make her the voting winner. Well, that's a, a great question. Um... Some of my favorite stuff here, I've been kind of racking my brain trying to go through everything we've covered uh, to this point. And some of my favorite stories here are uh, definitely uh, X-Men number six and number seven. Uh, number six was the Mystique story that had us back on the Orcus Forge finding out, you know, exactly what she was doing during um, whatever issue of uh, Hoxpox that was, where uh, all the X-Men died, uh, taking out the, the Mother Mold or the Master, whatever they called that thing. I think it was the Mother Mold. But Mystique's solo story there was wonderful. Um, made me feel like we were actually reading Hoxpox again, which was a... It was, it was fun because Hoxpox was intimidating and it was challenging and it gave us just so much information... And for someone like me who gets hung up on continuity and everything being on the table here, I think I projected a lot of my worries onto Hoxbox, where, I mean, if you listen to the early episodes, they're probably cringe fest where I'm just like, don't take my continuity away. What life are we in? What, what, what still exists? What doesn't exist? But uh, this story with Mystique was also challenging in that it made me feel like we were back in Hoxpox here. So it's like, I feel like I had to mentally prepare for that episode and uh, try to like get my game up to uh, a higher... I mean, not that my game is, is great even on the best of days here, but I feel like I, I had to take it to another level here to give that episode the proper, um, proper treatment, the proper attention. Then we have X-Men number 7, which introduced us to the concept of the Crucible. Now, the Crucible has given us a ton, 
to think about, talk about, just chew on ever since. And we've seen it come back a couple of times since then, but uh, it was never quite so shocking as in that issue of X-Men there, where uh, Arrow is just taken down from by Apocalypse. It's sobering, very sobering scene here. Um, I think that was probably... The biggest shoe drop moment uh, ever since the uh, the reveal during House of X number five with the resurrection protocols and the evil mutants coming to live on Krakoa, I feel like that's how big a deal the introduction of the Crucible was because uh, and the way it was presented was very very wonderful because it was subtle. You know, we were told that oh the, this thing is happening. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know what it what was what it was all about. We didn't know why it was. Well, we, we had an idea why it was, but who would approve it, you know? Who, why would anybody let this happen? And we got it felt like um, that old story about the lottery, right? Where the, like a little town has a lottery and the winner is just stoned to death, you know? You get this sinister feeling around this lottery, but you can't quite put your finger on it until the, you know, the trigger is pulled. With the Crucible here, it's like there was this trepidation and excitement from all the characters, This is something that people wanted, but also were kind of put off by. Cyclops and Nightcrawler go off and they talk about what this means. Wolverine and Cyclops talk about what this means. And then finally, it's presented, and it's kind of like an Occam's Razor situation here, because it is exactly what it looks like, you know? This is a person being slaughtered so they can be brought back to life. A wonderful, wonderful issue, and I'm sure we will talk about it a lot more, even even now, because... It still resonates, and it's still very, very strong, and it's still a foundation of this era, and uh, I still love it as a concept, as a concept. I have a little bit of trouble with it in practice, but in concept, I love the fact that it's giving us so much food for thought. Uh, Hellions, in full. I haven't had an issue with this book yet that I've been disappointed with. Uh, This is... The uh, I, I remember before we got into Wave 2 of the Dawn of X books here, I said Marauders is the most consistent... Top quality, but consistently quality book. Hellions has taken that from Marauders here. Hellions has never disappointed. It's given us so much to think about, so much to talk about. A book that looks like, like I mentioned here, it's got this weird blend of horror, gore, comedy, and cartoon. It shouldn't work. It really, really shouldn't work. But then they give us scenes like Madeline Pryor begging to, to, that, she, that Havoc tell people that she was a real girl. And it's heartbreaking, you know? It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff here. It's I can't say enough good things about it. Um, X-Factor after the Mojo World arc, because I did not like the Mojo World arc. I, <laughs> I When reading X-Factor number two, I, I, I love that I'm getting this question for this milestone episode, because it's really given me an opportunity to go down memory lane here, and uh, I beg your indulgence in allowing me to do this, but... Uh, I remember when I covered X Factor number two, which I felt was probably one of the one of the most cringy comics that I've covered in a very very long time. I reached out to some of the uh, listeners and I was like, "Hey, am I crazy, <laughs> or is this book really hard to read?" And I got a mixed result. I got people saying, "Oh, I loved it." Absolutely loved it. And I had some other people being like, oh, man, that's where I stopped X-Factor. I was so excited for X-Factor, and I couldn't make it past the second issue. So I, <laughs> I had trouble with that one. 
Um, after we got out of Mojo World, though, uh, starting with the uh, the Exoswords issue, where we found out that uh, if you die in Otherworld, you don't come back the same. Very, very strong. And uh, like you said, it put Polaris in the spotlight to the point where she is now viewed as a solid, I'd say, B plus player, right? In in the uh, in the X Men universe, she's not a she's not a D level. She's not a C level. She's She's bordering on A right now. She is a high profile, so I I definitely credit uh, Leo Williams and David Baldion for uh, for you know pumping her up there. Uh, the despite the fact that I hate the space stuff, the, I did enjoy the New Mutants Shiar story. I thought that was really good. Uh, it's it's one of those things where it's a good news bad news thing because it set us up right. It set us up for. Like this weird sunspot as Magnum P.I. story where he's kind of breaking the fourth wall, but he's kind of also just like an egotistical jerk who might just monologue to himself because he thinks he's that important. And I I like the character dynamics during that. We saw the little, I don't want to say a schism, but we saw the generation gap between the New Mutants and Generation X. Uh, You know, Cannonball comes back and the New Mutants are all overjoyed to see him. Meanwhile, Chamber and Mondo are just like, yeah, it's that guy. Okay, we'll hang out over here. I thought that was a really well done story here, but it set us up for, uh, like, it it wrote a check that, unfortunately, um, Ed Brisson couldn't cash. You know, uh, instead of getting more of that, we got, like, the farm story. You know, we got the uh, the Cosmar story. Weren't very strong. They just weren't very strong. We had uh, Boom Boom as a drunk. I mean, it just wasn't wasn't great. But the opening salvo with uh, with Sunspot in the uh, point of use uh, position there was, was a lot of fun. I, I thought that was really cool. Uh, Marauders most of the time. There have been issues of Marauders I didn't much care for. I've talked about that a lot. Um, I don't really like the way Call Me Kate is uh, is depicted a lot of the times, um, and I think there was a bit of water treading in a few of the ep- in a few of the issues um, recently, which I mean, we're in between our we're in between crossovers here. It's it's a weird nebulous time, so I, I guess we can forgive that. It's mostly a top quality book, though. I don't think I've ever been disappointed outright by it, but. Um, I haven't. I certainly haven't liked it as much as Hellions. Now, speaking of Marauders here, the dinner party scene during Exoswords, I had more fun with that than I think anything in Exoswords. That was a wonderfully strong um, scene there, and I think that was Jerry Duggan and Ben Percy writing that together, and they they brought it. They really brought it here. They fleshed out these characters who were nothing, right? They were just semi-cool, semi-interesting designs. They weren't characters, necessarily. We had, okay, well, there's the Anubis-looking one. There's the one that looks like Firestorm. All we knew was, uh, what's-a-face? Iska. Iska the Unbeaten. That was the only member of this crew that we really knew a whole heck of a lot about. And I mean, we had the White Sword, who, I mean, I I can only speak for myself, but I didn't care about him until the dinner party story. You know, we saw him as an honorable sort. You know, when he saw that, I think it was the Horseman Death um, tried poisoning Wolverine, right? We see that, and he's like, and the White Sword's like, these are the people I'm on the same side as. You know, how how did I get stuck doing this here? We can see that he is, he's got his own code of ethics. I think that that two-parter there did more for Exoswords than anything else. It was just so well done. 
So well done. I've enjoyed most of Cable. Cable has been really good outside of the X of Swords issue, um, or maybe it was two issues. I, I wasn't too keen on those, but uh, everything else has been great for Cable. Um, it's unfortunate that Cable is uh, going to be going away soon, so I guess we can enjoy it while we have it. Um, I really liked the Wolverine Auction House story, and I also really liked, I think it was Wolverine number four, where he's at that uh, that weird tavern where... Um, I think I, I think I compared it to like an episode of the Twilight Zone here where he unwittingly walked into like a mutant survivor, mutant attack survivor support group or something like that. I thought that was a lot of fun. And uh, probably the first time in that volume where I was like, okay, this, this book kind of has a reason to exist. Uh, finally, here is to not take up everybody's entire day here. Um, the X-Force issues that were focused on Domino and Colossus where... And I think this was right around the time that the Crucible was introduced in X-Men. I think, I think we actually did these two episodes back-to-back, um, where we're talking about Colossus asking Domino, why don't they just walk into the ocean? You know, why don't they just kill themselves? And they explored the option of suicide here, and it made us ask a lot of questions about the trauma that they face, the trauma that they are brought back with, um, the trauma that they can choose to leave behind or bring, bring with them. In the end of that story arc, Domino dies, and she tells, uh, she tells Peter to make sure that she remembers everything. She wants her trauma. She wants to remember that Zeno had her in a, in a, you know, in a canister and were tearing off chunks of her skin to power other Zeno people. She wanted to remember that. Then she comes back and she doesn't remember any of that, which, I mean... That's that gives us some questions to ask too. I, I I think that was probably the high point of X Force for me. But back to Jesse. He says, speaking of, I'm wondering about the team dynamics and redundancy with this new X team. Having Sync, one of my one of my favorite comic characters, and Rogue on the same team with powers that are very similar will be interesting to see what happens. I love the li- I love the team lineup, and I can't wait to see what happens next there. It's doubtful Polaris of X-Factor and Rogue of Excalibur will leave their teams, but we'll have to wait and see what happens in this book. You point out that uh, Rogue and Sync have similar powers, and I, I gotta figure that that's probably... Maybe I'm, I'm just, you know, swinging wildly here, but I think that's gotta be intentional, because, like, if we look at New Mutants right now, so much of that is based on using powers uh, synergously, or however you say that word, um, just tandem, using tandem offense here. We've seen, like, Magic and Wolfsbane work together, and, like, the portal shoots out five wolves, and I think they're really putting emphasis on the fact that these these powers can be amplified, maybe amplified, maybe just... Um, Complemented is probably the better way to say that here. We've got these powers being complemented. I wonder if that's what they have in mind for Rogue and uh, and Sync. Uh, like you said, it's going to remain to be seen here. Um, I agree with you. I don't think that Polaris or Rogue will leave their other books. I hope they do. I mean, I, I hope I do. They do, and I hope they don't. <laughs> it's weird because I like Polaris and X Factor. I really do. Rogue is one of the few bright spots in Excalibur. So if she leaves, unless they change the entire um, mission statement of that book or just cancel it, uh, um, I I don't know how that book would work without Rogue in it. 
having Gambit still in it. I mean, it could just be weird. So you're probably right. You're probably right that they're going to stick around there. I do miss the days where, you know, the teams were a little bit more, I guess for lack of a better term, like not so much segregated, but just set in stone, you know? We had like the gold strike force, we had the blue strike force, and you knew what who was where when. And if another character showed up, like if Storm showed up in volume two, it was treated as a guest appearance because that's not her home book until, of course, it was a crossover central over there. But uh, like you said, I think it'll remain to be seen. Jesse continues, the stuff that I could put in a box and never take out again would be the Empire crossover. Fallen Angels, the first few issues of Wolverine, and that farm stuff in New Mutants. Marauders is growing on me, but it, but it's still not my favorite, and Excalibur is bland and confusing. So yes, my least favorite stuff here. Um, yeah, the Empire crossover. All of it. <laughs> all of it. I think we got two issues of X-Men uh, Volume 5 that were part of Empire as well. Yeah, deep six that. That can go in the box and never come out again. Wolverine and Hell... Can go in the box and never come out again uh, Basically All of Excalibur except for Like that weird werewolf hunting Two-parter I think we can put that all away um, Because I, I, while the werewolf one Wasn't my favorite I, I can't say I didn't You know enjoy it I thought that was pretty good Stuff um, The Mojo World uh, X-Factor stuff I don't ever need to look at again The farm stuff in New Mutants I also don't ever need to look at again Fallen Angels, I recommend nobody ever look at ever again. What else? What else did I not like? Um, I know we disagree on this one, but uh, the the brew two-parter, that I never need to see again. <laughs> and finally, the um, the X-Men uh, the X-Men 12, X-Men 14 deal, where we got the same story twice. I don't need to see either. One of those again Uh, Jesse wraps up with Well Chris, thanks for all you do to entertain us And as soon as I can find some time You'll be hearing my take on Generation X once again So until I don't fall asleep Reading 60s X-Men Make mine X-Laps Oh, that's cold-blooded, man I I agree (laughs) I agree, some of those 60s stories are Kind of hard to get through I mean, that was one of the... uh, I've talked about this, um, I don't know if I talked about it on this show, but uh, certainly on this channel I've talked about how every year I would have one New Year's resolution. Um, this is this goes like back 10 years before I actually started doing the, you know, this, this you know, comic, comics con- commentary content. Every New Year's Day I would, uh, I would resolve to start a blog and I would... Uh, I would open up a blog page, I'd, you know, register a name, I'd open up the little, you know, the the blogger template, and I'd sit there, and I might type out a paragraph or two, and I might type out some credits, because they were all comics-related blogs that I was uh, planning on, you know, creating. And then, you know, lunch would come, and I'd be like, okay, I guess uh, I'll come back to this sometime, and I never, ever would. And one of my ideas was to do a, uh, not so much a daily blog, but a, uh, a regular blog where I went through every single issue of Uncanny X-Men. And so I pulled out uh, the Essential, I think it was Essential Uncanny X-Men is what they called it, uh, because Essential X-Men started with Giant Size. It was one of the first Essential volumes they put out. So in order to collect the older stuff, uh, the first volume was Essential Uncanny X-Men, 
The subsequent two volumes were essential, cl- uh, essential classic X-Men, I think. So I lugged out that first volume of Essential Uncanny X-Men, and I started to read through it, thinking that I was going to write, you know, semi-regularly about each issue in it. And boy, I, I didn't make it far in the read. I mean, of course, I, I, you know, I'm an X-Men fan, and I have a certain amount of admiration and love for those stories and uh, the seminal bits and pieces that are in them, but they're not as fun to read as the later stuff. That I can... Absolutely say But uh, I want to thank you so much For uh, the kind words there, Jesse And for uh, sharing sharing with us uh, Your favorites and not-so-favorites uh, That's definitely a question I'd love to uh, to ask everybody Everybody who's listening Who uh, would like to take part Please let me know your favorite bits Of the Hox Pox Rocks era And maybe some of your least favorite bits uh, I think there's a lot of meat on that bone And getting uh, different perspectives here is uh, I think that could be a lot of fun here I think we're going to We'll agree on some things, we'll disagree on some things But, uh, I mean, that's kind of the point, right? So thank you so much for, uh, well, everything, I guess So thank you, thank you so much Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me If you'd like to share your favorites and not-so-favorites Or just talk about anything in the world, wide world of X or otherwise Please feel free to uh, hit me up You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com for blog posts and show notes, you can go over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com to chat us up on Facebook. Maybe even uh, share some of your favorites and not-so-favorites there. You can find us there on Facebook as 90s X-Men. Uh, there's also Instagram, 90s X-Men. Uh, there still is only one lonely post there. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, please check out chrisandreggie.podbean.com. It's available anywhere you can find noise and sound. But that will do it for today. Went a little bit longer than I thought we would, but uh, had a heck of a fun conversation with myself, and that's always a good thing. So I'd like to thank you all so much for all your support over these past 175 episodes. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. X-Lapsed is back. This is episode 186 of X-Lapsed, and uh, yeah, I got my delivery. So uh, we are back in business, at least for the next couple of weeks. I would like to thank everyone for um, all their kind words about the uh, substitute program I've been putting on for the past few days here in the Essential X-Lapsed. It's been a lot of fun going back to the Silver Age. I'm looking forward to getting back to it again when we... Uh, when we get through this month's shipment. So um, I hope you are as well. And again, thanks uh, to everyone for the kind words about that little project. So yes, Original Recipe X-Lapsed is back, and that's the good news. Um, uh, the maybe not-so-good news is today is Excalibur Day. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Excalibur Volume 4, Number 20. It's at a June 2021 cover date. Stories called No Pity From Your Friends. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe, colors Eric Garshanaga, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Pisa White Sapolsky, cover price $4. This one went on sale April 7 of 2021. Now, um, when I got my shipment just the other day, uh, this issue was right on top of the next issue of Hellions we're going to discuss. And, um, uh, boy, I mean... If we're going to get all these covers with uh, Betsy and Quinan on the cover, can we Can we just not? <laughs> I mean, oh, can we just move past this little feud, uh, this... I hate to use the word frenemy, but uh, I, I guess that's kind of what we're stuck with now. Anyway, let's get into the issue itself here. Now, we open in the way back when, and we're in Doncaster, England, where rebellious and angsty teenager Alice McAllister is tromping into the house around 4 a.m., her mother's waited up for her and would have words with her about where she's been and what she's been getting up to. Alice is quick to jump on the whole, I never asked to be born sort of tack, and uh, she even threatens to commit suicide because she hates her life so much. Her mother kind of brushes this off, which may suggest to us that maybe this is a regular threat, or that maybe she just doesn't quite know how to wrap her head around such a thing. Now, a bit later, Mum heads upstairs to Alice's room with two pieces of very burnt toast. Inside the room, the bedroom, Alice is dead. Well, she appears to be dead. What actually happened here was that her mutant powers had just kicked in, and, uh, well, I mean, she's Malice, um, so Malice is Alice, and Alice is Malice. And so, while Mum cradles Alice's body, we see her malicious spirit leaving the room via window. And we can clearly see here that she's wearing the Malice choker necklace, and, uh, you know, it made me actually flip back a couple of pages to see how obvious this was. And, uh, you know, I tell you what, they did a really good job obscuring her neck so it wouldn't, like, give this bit away right away. So, re really well done there. Info page, all about that malice. And I'm not going to go into her history just yet because toward the end of the show, we're going to break off a little bit of fake-ass comics history. So, uh, stay tuned for that. Next up, a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got Betsy Britton, Rogue, Jubilee, Emma Frost, Psylocke, Charles Xavier, and Magneto. We're back to comics, and we got Betsy Britton addressing the Quiet Council. Professor X commends her for returning from her otherworldly death. He thanks the heavens that this issue won't be taking place there. Oh, wait, no, that's, that's me. That's me who's thanking the heavens for that. Uh, he also tells her that she fought bravely for Krakoa. Now, Mr. Sinister decides to be his sassy self by informing Betsy that Iska, the unbeaten, has been invited to stay. And he wonders aloud what might happen should they run into each other at the Green Lagoon. Iska's here? 
I, I thought she was on Araco. And, and thought, like, Krakoa was like a nation of numbskulls. Maybe Sinister just means that she's on Earth, which um, doesn't totally rule out her showing up at the Green Lagoon, but it doesn't make it all that likely either. Anyway, Betsy tells the Council that she doesn't want to take up too much time. Yeah, right. Uh, actions speak louder, Bets. Uh, you know, try letting us have an issue where we're not dealing with 31 flavors of purple-haired captains here. She also mentions that there's a gala coming up, and indeed, this is the final issue of Excalibur before the gala. Kitty tells her not to worry about getting all dolled up, because Jumbo Carnation will help her sort all that out. Sebastian Shaw attempts to outsass Sinister by reminding everyone that England, or Great Britain, or the UK, whichever term I'm supposed to use, well, whoever they are, they're not all that happy with their absentee captain. The Brits all assume that Betsy's just off vacationing on Krakoa. Storm mentions that her royal wyness also isn't happy, but really, I mean, have we ever seen her happy? And also, who, who gives a crap? The subject then turns to Otherworld Resurrections, and we're reminded that Rockslide and Gorgon are forever changed. Despite the fact that it's been like six months and we still haven't seen Gorgon once. And I'm not even sure we've seen Rockslide since the Festival of Swords ended, so I mean... Yeah, at least they're still in our thoughts. Xavier tells Betsy that she's got to smooth things over with Saturnine. Since, you know, there is a Krakoan gate to Otherworld, and, uh, well, children might accidentally wander in there. Kind of like what's going on over in New Mutants right this very minute. So, Xavier lays it out this way. It's either cool things off with Saturnine, or we shut down the Otherworld gate. To which I ask, ooh, ooh, do I get a vote? Because I know which way I'm voting. Now, Betsy assures Charles that it's safe. After all, the gate's at her house, you know, the, the Braddock Lighthouse. Magneto chimes in to state that Excalibur will stand guard until all this blows over. Xavier adjourns the meeting, and Betsy is approached by Emma Frost. Emma inquires about Krakoa's newest citizen, Malice, and why Betsy is keeping her a secret. Betsy gets pretty defensive and claims that Malice hasn't broken any laws. Hasn't she, though? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess she hasn't yet broken any Krakoan laws, unless we missed a panel of her, like, littering on Krakoa or something. Really doesn't matter, though, because no sooner does Betsy turn her back than Emma Frost attacks her. You see, Emma's been maliced. Now, before Emma can jam a diamond dagger into Betsy's back, Quanon runs in with her psychic blade, runs it right through Emalice's throat, and right through that choker. Betsy and Psylocke have a difficult time dislodging the psychic knife from Emma's throat, and when they finally do, Quanon is shocked that Betsy is able to pick the thing up. Because Quanon didn't think anyone else could. And I tell you, I'm glad she mentioned it, because I probably wouldn't have given it a second thought. Then, Professor X returns, having heard or witnessed this entire event. Uh, he isn't exactly pleased that Betsy would keep this from him, which... I mean, in all honesty here, it's kind of been Excalibur's gimmick this entire run. You know, do things, don't tell the council. I mean, he really shouldn't be surprised. They check in on Emma, and they deduce that she'll be okay. Uh, she retreated into a safe area of her mind, or something like that. Xavier informs the Psylocks that this act of malice, from malice, uh, has turned their little personal matter into a Krakoan security threat. He reminds us all that Krakoa has a way of dealing with lawbreakers, which is to say they go to the hole with Sabretooth. He mentions that this isn't a prison, 
To which Quinan disagrees, and uh, I gotta ask, I mean, who'd have thunk she'd ever be the voice of reason in a scene? Betsy pleads with the prof to let them handle this before any judgments are passed, and uh, she suggests that Malice may be unwittingly separated from her body. Xavier's like, okay, cool, we got the five, they can make her a new husk. But, in any event, she's gonna have to go on trial for this attempt on Betsy's life. Magneto says that they won't go easy on her because of her mutation... To which I say, uh, careful, buddy. Uh, you may one day have to eat those words. <clears throat> Sometime soon, probably. Oh, and it's worth noting that Malice is now inhabiting Quinan's psychic knife, which I didn't realize was possible, but in fairness, I didn't know that it wasn't either. So, there you go. Info page, and it's a bunch of text messages from Pete Wisdom to remind us all that the friggin' Coven Akaba is still a thing we need to worry about, because... That there's a story that refuses to end. Um, now, Betsy hasn't replied to any of these messages, though. In fairness to her, she's been dead-ish. Back to comics, and we're over at the Braddock Lighthouse, where Betsy is trying on clothes for the gala. And the scene kind of drags on a little bit. Um, you see, the gimmick here is that all of Betsy's old dresses were ordered when she was occupying Quanon's body. And, oh, you didn't know? Betsy used to occupy Quanon's body. They don't ever really mention that. So it's a good thing I'm here to remind you all that uh, at one point Betsy uh, inhabited or occupied Quinnon's body. Now, as much as I like Marcus Toe's artwork, there really should have been an effort made here to differentiate the body types of our ladies if we're trying to drive this point home. Because Betsy and Quinnon, and I mean even Rogue, who's also in the scene, they have like the, exa- the exact same body build here. Um, so if the dresses fit... Quanon, it stands to reason that they'd fit Betsy as well. They look fairly, fairly similar here. Quanon then shows up to discuss the malice issue, to which Betsy says, Hey, I got all these old dresses, you want them? And Quanon's like, No, they're not my style. And so we shift scenes to a beach where they're burning them all. Okay, why do that? Um, I mean, over in Wolverine, we had this that, uh, that wonderful auction on Madripoor. I mean, you could auction these things off, right? Then again, it's not like Krakoa needs the extra scratch. Uh, we do know that money grows on trees here, literally. Anyway, Quanon and Betsy then decide to dive into the psychic knife to try and reason with Malice. And so in they go. Inside the knife is a nightclub, a club it turns out that Betsy is pretty familiar with. It's called the Violet Velveteen in Leeds, England, which is apparently not a real place. Uh, I guess it's a good thing there's a reference to purpleness in the name to, you know because that's kind of what we have to have. We might have forgotten which character we're reading about. Betsy heads to an isolated area of the club, and lo and behold, there sits Alice. Quinan suggests that she'll wait on the other side of the curtain to let Betsy do her thing. And so Betsy sits down across from Alice and invites her to make her home on Krakoa. Alice is annoyed that Betsy called her by name and begins making threats. Back on the beach, Betsy and Quinan begin to seize... Rogue and Jubilee, who have been sitting there mostly to remind us that they're part of this book's cast, they freak out a little bit. Quinan is shocked awake and tells the other two that Betsy and Malice are about to fight. Back inside, uh, Malice has remade the landscape into the dueling ring where Betsy was shattered to, you know, a billion Betsy bits by Iska during the opening round of the Festival of Swords. Betsy is like, oh, you know, pretty sneaky, sis, and uh, admits that she lost a battle here, but... This was also the place where Krakoa won the war. From here they fight. In the real world, Betsy continues to seize up. Malice then disappears from the astral background. 
Then, we realize that the choker necklace has manifested around Quanan's neck. Betsy wakes up and swipes the choker off of Quanan's neck, and it lands in the nearby bonfire, which... I guess kills Malice? I mean, what a way to go, right? You're burning her to death. That's... I don't know how you can do that to an incorporeal... Incorporal? However you say that word. Um, an ethereal being. There you go. In the very next panel, Malice in her Alice body pops out of her gold ball. Professor X is all, hey, good morning. You ready to spend eternity in the hole? Uh, Psylocke, Betsy, and Emma are able to persuade Charles not to exile her. Now we wrap up the issue with Malice watching the sunrise, or set, I don't know what time of day it is, while our narration waxes on about fresh starts. And that's where we leave it. Next stop for Excalibur is the Hellfire Gala, but next stop for us is uh, some more Madriporian marauding. So uh, look forward to that, but... That's a discussion for another day. Let's talk about this one. Well, we didn't go to Otherworld, so there's an automatic plus, right? Uh, You know, if I were the type to bait creators with a numbered rating system, this alone would have bumped the issue up at least two entire points. Um, But let's, let's talk about what actually did happen instead of what didn't. Malice gets a backstory. Um, is that our main takeaway here? Uh, you know... I will concede that it's been a very long time since I last read anything with Malice in it. I, I did a little bit of a research for our uh, fake-ass comics history that'll be coming up here, but um, I believe this is a whole new backstory for her. Um, and since that is the case, it's kind of boilerplate stuff, isn't it? I mean, she was a depressed, gothy teenager. And that's it. Um, she's also suicidal. Which would actually lead to Marvel leaving the number to the Suicide Prevention Hotline in astonishingly tiny print on the last page of the issue right below the coming soon graphic. Which I would assume, if I were a betting man, which I say time and again I am not, um, I would say 85-90% to of the readers of this book don't even look at that page. So a little bit half-hearted. You'd think maybe Marvel would perhaps nix a house ad and make this a little bit more visible. But nah, Lord knows you gotta promote X-Corp. Um, by the way, if you need it, the number to the Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. So, now, on that tack here, we've got Malice McMalister, right? She's suicidal. She wants to die and not come back, right? That's kind of the thing here. She does not want to come back, and yet, they bring her back anyway. I don't know if they realized how this looked when they wrote it. Um, But, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, haven't we? We've talked about Last Wishes. We've talked about Mutant Wills, right? That was something that was brought up way back in the Crucible issue, X-Men number 7, when Nightcrawler decided to start his own mutant religion. He was talking to to Scott about the Mutant Wills, like how people wanted to come back. We've seen in X-Force all the adjustments that Quentin Quire requested, right? Uh, From things, some cosmetic things, you know? Uh, From not having hair grow in certain places so he didn't have to shave parts of himself. To things like having perfect 2020 vision so he can wear glasses just as a fashion accessory. There is something to the mutant wills here, and it does go to show that the five can perform, you know? They can do they can it, it you know it's Burger King you know you can have it your way you know yet here 
uh, we have the other side of the coin. And, and this kind of um, reminds me of uh, Domino over in X-Force, where when she died, she wanted to keep all of her harmful or problematic memories. You know, she wanted all that baggage because it was part of her. But she came back and was, relatively speaking, happy-go-lucky, right? And she didn't have those memories. She didn't have memories of her time being flayed by Zeno. And uh, didn't didn't know that they, those memories even existed. So when, like, Peter was saying, like, you know, reminding her of her memories, she had absolutely no idea. Here, we've got Malice McMallister, right? And I mean, Alice McAllister, okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. She wanted to stay dead, but Krakoa wasn't having it, and they brought her back anyway. We have touched on mutant suicide here, again, back in X-Force, with uh, Peter and Domino, where Peter just says, hey, let's just walk into the, wo- into the ocean, you know, let's just walk in there, all of our pain will go away, maybe they'll bring us back, maybe they won't, but it doesn't matter, because we're in so much pain right now, and we don't want to feel this pain. It's a, it's a very heavy subject, of course um, But here, I mean I don't know, I, I have weird feelings about this here She didn't want to be, and yet She's being forced to be, you know uh, Let's take a step back from that And let's look at her apparent death scene here um, Did they really burn her to death? I mean, that's cruel, isn't it? Like, can an essence without a body actually burn? Is the choker necklace like a proxy for a physical body? I don't know. It's a very cruel way to go. Nebulous and cruel. Now, speaking of bodies, uh, how did the five make one for her that quickly? Did Cerebro already have a backup for her? Is this an old backup? Uh, Since she is a legacy marauder, did they use a black market sinister DNA body or whatever for this? And I mean... That also begs the question, why didn't we see more of Sinister in this issue, right? I don't know. Uh, Malice seems like she'd be right up the alley of the Hellions book, doesn't she? Um, Don't know. Something else that stood out to me here is the Quiet Council's preoccupation with Otherworld. Now, we didn't go there, and thank heavens for that, but uh, we did get to talk about it a lot. And here, Professor X seems to think that Saturnine is the biggest threat to Krakoa, well, maybe six months ago when we fumbled our way through the X of Tens Festival of Swords, maybe, but now? Now? Really? Saturnine? What about post-humanity? Uh, the Children of the Vault? Hey, uh, how about them uh, unpredictable Iraqis? And anybody remember Orcus? What about Zeno? Ominous Verandy? Oh, yeah, and those humans who fear and hate them? I mean, nah, I mean, this is Excalibur, so of course the biggest threat out there is friggin' Saturnine. Come on, what, what are we even talking about here? Which brings me to my last point here. Um, this book feels like it's only interested in promoting things that happen in this book. And, I mean, that's one way to do it, right? Uh, we got to differentiate the, the absolute glut and bloat of the X-Men line right now, but... I don't know, this just feels short-sighted. It feels like it's missing so many other things that have been bubbling up since since this whole era started here. Um, it's hard for me to take it seriously. It really is. It just seems way too pleased with itself and uh, not interested in really anything else. I really don't know. 
It was pretty, though. It was pretty. Uh, Marcus Toe, fantastic work here. I did have that one issue with the body differentiation there. Uh, Betsy and Quinan, they looked very similarly sized. There was no apparent, no obvious difference in their physiques. So the dress thing, I don't know. Uh, And, you know, the more I hear about the Hellfire Gala... The less I'm looking forward to it, I, I gotta say. Um, hate to say it, but gotta say it. But I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Um, let's hop into our mailbag here. We actually have three back-end segments today. How about that? It's, uh, it's you know, the sign of the times that we had to take a few days off, so uh, we got some stuff piling up. Now we're going to start with a message from our friend Damien. He's talking about cable number seven. He says, hi, Chris. I'm back with my thoughts on cable number seven. I hope you're well. I am. Is it just me, or is cable one of the only books to be dealing with the aftermath of the X of Tens crossover? It seems like a weird place to see follow-up. Yes. (laughs) Yes, on both cases there. Uh, Yes, it is one of the only books handling stuff like this. And yes, it's a weird place to see follow-up. You'd figure that we would see it in some of the other books here. But alas, no. I mean, we are getting nods every now and again, right? Just today, in this issue of Excalibur, it's like, yeah, Gorgon's forever changed. It's like, well, where the hell is Gorgon? Let us see this guy. <laughs> Let us see the forever changed Gorgon, you know? Show, don't tell. I mean, that's kind of one of the big problems with this entire era. It's tell, don't show. Damien continues, I very much enjoyed this story and was most impressed by how well they reintroduced elements from much earlier in the run, but without confusing me. Sometimes I need a little hand-holding. And you're right, this is a, uh, the way they did this, um, it, it flowed very well, very organic. Of course, we did have the road bumps, right? We did have the road bumps, we had to get the, the light of Galador, right? We needed to deal with the Space Knights to get Cable his sword so he could do the Exitens thing. So that was the little road bump here, the speed bump in our path. But Jerry Duggan is just so damn good. That, um, and I mean, Phil Noto, I mean, do we even need to talk about Phil Noto? He's phenomenal. But Jerry Duggan here, uh, you know, mind like like a memory like an elephant here, doesn't forget any of these little details that need to be continued along here. So we come back in and it's like we never left, right? We didn't, we didn't miss a beat. And it's just uh, an absolute treat to be following this book here. Damien continues. What I didn't understand was why Cable hid the involvement of Strife from everyone else. Why would he want to keep that a secret? It's not likely that his family would be unwilling to fight against Strife. Weird. I do trust Duggan and Noto to have a good reason, but I'm a little lost right now. And we do see a little bit of that in the next issue of Cable, where he, uh, he, I mean, he talks to everybody he knows, basically, except for two. You know, he goes to Wolverine for help. He goes to Emma Frost for help. He goes to Rachel for help. He goes to Hope for help. He goes to Wildside for help. But he doesn't go to Cyclops and he doesn't go to Jean. So I think that is where the big secret is. I think he doesn't want Strife's parents, or I mean his parents, Strife's clone parents, I guess, to have to deal with this. I think he sees this as his, um, his mistake. And he mentions this uh, in subsequent issues here where he says, you know, I thought I killed him, but I didn't. I thought I wiped him. I thought I wiped his mind, but I didn't. You know, I thought I lobotomized him, but I, I didn't. So I think he is, uh, 
he's in this weird stasis, you know? He's got this growing pains thing happening to him now. He's he's not racking up a lot of W's. He's losing a lot. You know, he lost during the Festival of Swords, right? He's He was called, he got the fool card and took it to heart. Uh, he's not doing great. So I think he is just compounding failure, or perceived failure upon perceived failure upon perceived failure. And uh, he might be a little bit embarrassed. I think he is taking a lot of the responsibility onto himself. And uh, I don't think he wants to let his parents down. Uh, I think that could be it. He just sees strife as his problem because he let it get to this point. Damien continues. It's just a shame there are only three issues left in this series. It's great that Duggan is moving over to X-Men, but I hope Noto also sticks around the X-Books. They are such a good team. Here, here. Uh, on both things there, uh, Duggan on the X-Men, I'm very, very pleased about that. And Noto, if we can get him a spot, please do it. <laughs> please do it, because hell, put him on X-Men. <laughs> put him on X-Men with Jerry Duggan here. I would uh, love to see it. Damien wraps up with, anyway, until I get a clone from the future to help me catch up on all of Chris's podcasts, make mine X-lapsed. Well, if we can get a clone of someone... Who can update Marvel Unlimited? I think we'd all be better off, right? I mean, they are getting very weird with their release schedule here. I'm trying to... I'm still on the outside of it, because I, I don't read anything digitally. You guys know me. But I'm trying to keep abreast, at least, of when the books are coming out. So I'm, like, scanning things to see, you know, when did stuff hit. And it's gotten very, very sporadic. It felt like when we were talking about um, the Ex of Swords, uh, there was, like, a regular release rotation, you know, as I was t- covering them here on the show, they were coming out like in real time on Marvel Unlimited. It was like the perfect thing, right? Then when that ended, it's like we would go like two or three weeks without anything. And then we'd get like one issue. We'd get like an issue of like X Factor out of nowhere. It's like so weird. But hopefully, hopefully Marvel gets uh, gets better on top of that. But uh, thank you so much, Damien. And uh, I was so pleased when I woke up to your messages uh, over this past weekend. Uh, I've been looking forward to getting to them. So really, really means a lot. And uh, definitely look forward to talking about them in future episodes. Next up, we got Evan. He's talking about X-Factor number seven. He says, I was guessing the Morrigan, but I didn't know whether I ever got that on record. So I guess you'll have to trust me. I I will trust you, Evan. I'm sure you said that. You might have even said it to me. (laughs) He continues. My first thought with Prodigy was maybe Mara wanted the original for his power set to do something. But then you reminded me that he was depowered, so that conspiracy theory fizzles out. But I am curious about the truth about what's going on with him. Too bad the series is ending soon. (sighs) Yeah, we're going to talk about that during our little news break in a minute, but yeah, X-Factor's going away. And... That sucks. <laughs> Somehow X-Factor's leaving us, Cable's leaving us, and Excalibur goes on. And we're getting X-Corp on top of it. Oh, boy. Uh, Evan says, this was a great cliffhanger. And uh, yes, it really, really was. It was a great cliffhanger here. We didn't know what was what. Uh, the way it all worked itself out was a little bit confusing because it felt like we went backwards only to go forwards and then we kind of approached the cliffhanger scene like in the middle. It was very, very odd. But, I mean, when you read it all through, it's it's perfectly fine. It just for me, it kind of jarred me a little bit. But um, the cliffhanger that Evan is talking about is 
Dakin, Dakin, uh, going into the uh, living room or the movie-watching room of the X-Factor Boneyard and uh, meeting up with iBoy and Prodigy and finding out that everybody's dead. Everybody else, that is. They're, they're alive, of course. Now, Evan continues. Uh, this is talking about Wolverine here. He says, As for superhero or supervillain auctions, I can't think of a specific story with an auction, but in a very early issue, uh, in an early issue of New Avengers, Volume 1, not Volume 87, that is, the Wrecker stole back his magic crowbar from a collector and took the man's daughter hostage. I love stories like that. I, I, I mean, because that's something that me and Reggie would talk about a lot is collecting. You know, and Reggie even had his own series of programs on this channel that are still here on the channel if you'd like to find them. Um, I, Reggie's comic stories, the last uh, several episodes of that are about collecting, and then he he started his own, you know, collecting, uh, collecting stories series, and I believe it only went one or maybe two. I think it's just one episode, honestly. But there are several episodes of him talking with collectors, and uh, the first one, it was me. And uh, it was basically... Us recording a conversation that we would have And we had many, many times Because we we obsessed about collecting and collectability And he and I were very different in our comic collecting But uh, we were both collectors in, at heart um, My collections are comics You know, that's, uh, duh, right? Reggie's collections were uh, New York World's Fair memorabilia And I tell you, he showed me some pictures of this stuff And it was just uh, Mind-blowing And just wonderful, wonderful stuff So what I'm getting at here And taking the <laughs> the scenic route Is um, Collectability is something I think a lot of us Can relate to And so when we see That a magic crowbar Was bought by a private collector In the Marvel Universe, that tickles me You know, the very idea of it Because of course they would, right? I mean, if you were to find, you know, go back to when Wolverine didn't have his adamantium and he was leaving, you know, bone cloth fragments everywhere. If you were to find one of those, it would stand to reason that somebody would want it, right? You'd collect that thing because it's a thing to collect. So I, I'm just a huge fan of that. And it's funny, I think it was like a week after um, we read that issue of Wolverine with the auction in Madripoor, the Legacy House. Um, I covered an issue of Generation X Volume 2 on Generation X Lapsed where Quentin Quire, uh, Hindsight, and um, Morph went to an auction. So that kind of blew my mind because when, uh, when I talked about that issue of Wolverine, I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen something like this before, but it's so obvious. I must have seen something like this before. And then just a couple days later or maybe a week later, it's, hey, we're back at an auction house. How about that? But um, thank you so much for writing in, Evan. It really... Really means a lot Now let's uh, talk a little bit about the news here We're just going to touch on some of these things here We're not going to go too deep The first thing is uh, the trial of Magneto I joked about Magneto maybe, you know, having to eat his words During the synopsis of this issue here Now this is a series or a mini-series That's going to be coming out after the Hellfire Gala Because of course Marvel had to spoil Something that's going to happen in like a month and a half In the Hellfire Gala and uh, Magneto is going to be put on trial for it. Now, a lot of us, when uh, when they announced this, uh, they gave us that um, redacted Reign of X bloat timeline of the summer, right? And a lot of people were able to make out the words, the trial. I, I believe Damien is the one that brought that to my attention here, because I, I didn't know what it was. I, I wasn't sure what it said. And so we all kind of brainstormed, like, who might be going on trial, right? 
And a lot of us were sure, well, not sure, but a lot of us were hopeful that it was going to be uh, the Scarlet Witch. We were hoping it was going to be Wanda, the Pretender, right? And it was right around this time that uh, we looked at the we looked at that one page in the Strange Academy book where Magneto and Beast both invite the Scarlet Witch to Krakoa, and it was like, oh, maybe there's some uh, fire to this here smoke, right? Well, no, <laughs> it's the trial of Magneto. He's going to do something untoward at the Hellfire Gala, it would appear, and. Uh, I don't know. I hear that X-Factor will play a big role in that miniseries, which takes us to our next piece of news, that uh, X-Factor is ending with the Hellfire Gala issue, I believe issue 10. So we've got two more issues of X-Factor to discuss until it's it's done here. Um, And I do have a quote here from Leah Williams. Somebody had... uh, Somebody had written to her on Twitter, I believe, to say how much they enjoyed the book and uh, was sad to hear it was ending. And so Leia wrote back, I got the news about the book ending while scripting issue 9, so it immediately became a priority to resolve everything I could in a finite amount of space. Well, you don't need me to tell you that that sucks, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, First, it's a good book, right? Uh, I started out hating it. (laughs) I mean... Uh, issue two uh, was one of the, the books I hated the most out of any books that I've covered on the show. But it's grown on me, and I've really come to appreciate it and look forward to it and just really like it a lot. The second thing uh, is that X Factor is one of the very few books in this line that has a reason to exist, right? I mean, they have a purpose. They set things up. They had the, you know, the fleet seeds. They were going to be on these, uh, these missions. They were going to be private investigators. They were going to confirm deaths. I mean, they actually had a reason to exist. But no, we cannot have good things, nice things. We can't have nice things. The last bit of news here is um, perhaps another spoiler. Um, a one-shot by Al Ewing called Cable Reloaded. And if you've seen the promotional art for this, it is, in fact, Old Man Cable. Um, Now, this is going to be tying in with Guardians of the Galaxy and S.W.O.R.D., a crossover there. Uh, It's called, like, The Last Annihilation or The Last Armageddon, something like that. I've already pre-ordered the issues of Guardians of the Galaxy that lead into this, so we can maybe discuss them as we get closer to it. But we will, of course, be covering this uh, this annihilation, final annihilation crossover with Guardian Sword and Cable Reloaded. I don't know if this is giving away how the uh, the Noto Duggan series is going to end. I feel like Marvel realized that they made maybe lifted their skirt a little bit too much with this one, and were quick to be like, wait, 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 no, 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 this doesn't say anything. You know, this doesn't mean anything. This is after. This is a totally different thing. Which, I mean, might be them protesting too much, or it may be the truth. Who who could even tell, right? But those are our uh, bits of news here. Um, we're gaining two titles, at least for, you know, a little bit, and we are losing yet another. So that's that. Um, if you have any news that you think we can use, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know. It's seldom that I will put myself in a position where I have to look at comic book news sites. So uh, I'm trying to get better about that. I'm trying to be a little bit more flexible and a little bit less precious, but uh, it's a process and it's baby steps. Now, this will take us to the final segment of this program here. And it's a, 
It's something that I've wanted to do for a little while here, and it was inspired by a letter, a message that I got on Facebook, but not to the 90s X-Men group, but to my old Chris's on Infinite Earths group, which is still a group, and it has like, somehow it's like 500 people following it. I haven't the foggiest idea how people are following that page still. I haven't really done anything on it in a long time. But there's an inbox there that I forgot was a thing, and I was over there and I saw it. And uh, somebody had written in, and I don't remember their name, so I apologize. They just said that uh, I'll refer to myself quite often as a fake-ass comics historian. And they wrote in with a very kind letter saying that I was selling myself short and calling myself that because I provide, I provide information and I, and I provide, uh, you know, context and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you mentioning that, but um, fake-ass comics historian is a uh, tongue-in-cheek thing. It's a joke. I've seen, like, uh, on social media, the rise of the self-proclaimed comics scholar. And to me, that's kind of loaded in a way. It's, it, I don't know, I might just be projecting here, but I feel like there's a, an air of superiority in, in making such a statement, and that's not something I would ever, I would ever endeavor to do. Um, I feel like we're all just fans here. Um, there may be things about the industry and comics history that I know that other people might not, but there's things about the industry and comics lore that people know that I don't. So we're all kind of just in this together. We're all just sharing ideas, sharing stories, sharing memories. And to um, label yourself in such a way, um, I don't know, I think that kind of just misses the point of the fandom here. You're putting yourself above the, the rank-and-file comic fan, and that's just not something I want to do. I mean, I love it when this show is a conversation and less of a lecture, right? I, I always want I always want feedback. I always want conversation and engagement. I love talking about these things with people. I don't want this to be me talking at other people. So I've come to call myself a fake-ass comics historian because I love comics history. I would never say I'm your one-stop one-stop shop for it. I would never say that I am, you know, some sort of a repository for it. I've got a body of work. A lot of people have a body of work, but it's all about the conversation. It's all about us talking and having fun. And uh, if if we learn something, great. If we're able to teach something, that's great too. But it's all just a conversation. So that's why I refer to myself as a fake-ass comics historian. And, um, Anybody listening can be an honorary fake-ass comics historian as well, if you would, uh, if you would like to. But uh, that's going to get us to this new segment. We're just going to call it Fake-Ass Comics History. And since today we spent so much time getting to know Malice, I figure why not go all the way back to her beginning here and uh, give the quick and dirty on uh, Malice McMalister. Now, her first appearance was Uncanny X-Men number 210, had an October 1986 cover date. This one is a fairly popular issue. It's probably one of the more recognizable covers of the day here. It's the, you know, go-ahead-make-our-day cover. It's pretty good-looking there. Uh, she was created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. Her real name was originally unknown. And it was actually revealed in this very issue of Excalibur. So how about that? We are holding history in our hands. Now, she was one of Mr. Sinister's legacy marauders. Uh, she would make the scene by taking over Dazzler's psyche. The rest of the legacy marauders at this time were busy uh, with the mutant massacre. Now, Malice was discovered, or suspected anyway, during a Lila Cheney concert. 
Dazzler was kind of in the background, but wound up upstaging Cheney. And uh, it's worth noting here that Dazzler was also wearing a very fashionable neck choker at the time. Now, Cheney knew something was amiss, and so she called in the X-Men for an assist. Now, upon arrival at the concert, Dazzler was just going nuts. Malice would then body jump into Wolverine, and this would send him into a berserker rage until he is taken down by Dazzler, who is recovering. Then Malice would body jump again into Rogue. Psylocke was able to deduce exactly what was going on at this point, or at least make an educated guess. Malice would then vacate Rogue and attach herself to Storm at this point. Storm was able to fight her off. And Malice popped out and just went to a nearby body, you know, it's the civilian, to make a getaway. Malice would later be tasked with tracking down Polaris. Now, Polaris was retired from the X-Men at this point and was living with Havoc somewhere off the grid. Now, while Havoc was away, Malice would make her move, taking over Lorna's psyche. Then Malice, as Polaris, would defeat the rest of the Legacy Marauders in battle, after which she declared herself to be their new leader. Later, the Marauders would make an attempt to take out Madeline Pryor. This would be unsuccessful, though she would be hospitalized. Malice, as Polaris, would lead the Marauders into the hospital to attempt to finish the job, and there she would have an awkward run-in with Havoc. Later, Malice would attempt to disassociate herself from Polaris, only to find out that she was unable to vacate. Now, this is something that Mr. Sinister suspected would happen, but didn't bother to inform Malice McMalister when he gave her the task. Following Inferno, Polaris was slowly able to regain control of her body and psyche. Around this time, she would be kidnapped by Zaladane and taken to the Savage Land, and I tell you, I could think of no worse punishment, except maybe Otherworld. Malice was thought to be destroyed at this point by Zaladane draining Lorna of her magnetic powers. But she would come back, now this time while Lorna was part of X-Factor. Only this time she sought Havoc as her host. Now Lorna would beat Alex as Malice as Alex up real good, attempting to get the entity to leave Havoc and re-enter her own body. Malice couldn't choose, however. And so Mr. Sinister chose for her by killing her. For a while, anyway. We'd see, uh, we'd next see Malice much later, like after M Day, after Endangered Species, like right around the time of the birth of Hope Summers. Here, Sinister would send Malice to take over the psyche of Karima Whatserface, the Omega Sentinel. She would actually be uploaded into Karima via email, if you can believe it. Sinister wanted to use Malice to destroy Destiny's diaries. You remember when those were a thing? I remember being very excited about that, and then they uh, kind of forgot that that was what Extreme X-Men was supposed to be all about. <clears throat> now, Malice would come back again following X- Avengers vs. X-Men. Now she would take over Cyclops and fight with Spider-Man. This was in that A-plus X team-up series mess, if you remember that. Now Spider-Man was able to separate Malice from Cyclops and even gave Scott the gift of Malice in a box. Evidently, during the recent Rosenberg run, uh, Malice was back with the Marauders, slaughtering Morlocks. Chamber, who was the leader of the Morlocks at this point, would burn the Marauders to death. Which brings us to right here and right now. And, um, I guess the Malice that uh, made Sue Storm go into her bondage gear was a different Malice then. Hmm. (laughs) Oh, well. But uh, that'll do it for today's episode here. If you'd like to be part of the show, uh, reach out, say hello. I would love for you to do so. 
You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You can also join us on Facebook for some conversation. We are 90sXmen over there. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and all that good stuff. It would really, really mean a lot. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you'd spend around three quarters of an hour with me today. It really, really means a lot. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 197 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we are celebrating nine months of X-Lapsed as of today. We started this on September 1st of 2020, and here we are on June 1st of 2021. That's a long time, one of my uh, longest relationships ever, as a matter of fact. Um, let's get into today's book. It is Cable, volume 4, number 10, had a June 2021 cover date. Stories called Depression. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Led as VC's Joe Sabino designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolsky, cover price four bucks. And this one went on sale April 28 of 2021. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page. And it's an ancient proverb from the future attributed to Strife. He talks about how it's more important when you kill Cable than how. And uh, I suppose that stands to reason, considering that... Uh, you know, you kill Cable, and he's still bebopping through the timeline somewhere, right? Anyway, from here we go to our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got three characters here, Cable, Emma Frost, and Cyclops. Now we open with Kid Cable loitering outside the House of X, you know, where, where Xavier lives. He's spying through some binoculars, and he has with him a grenade. 
Emma Frost sidles over to assure him that there's probably far easier ways to be exiled to the hole. So, uh, wait. So is it kill no human or kill no man? Are, are mutants included if it's kill no human? I think the ship has sailed on this one. Anyway, little Nate assures Emma that it's just knockout gas, and uh, he's not really here to hurt anybody. He just needs to get Cerebro, because he needs to get the other guy back. And I'm not sure if that means that there's a Cerebro backup for Old Man Cable, or if there's a way Cerebro can see through time. Uh, Whatever the case, uh, would this Cable be privy to the Old Man's memories? Could they do a special variation on the Crucible to gift the kid with the memories and experiences of the old man? I really don't know. Anyway, Emma has a goo inside little Nate's mind, and she sees strife. The kid says he made a huge mistake during the extermination event, which uh, we spoke all about at great length during the Ex-Lapsination series here on the show. Now, this kind of begs the question, though. It makes us think a little bit. And, you know, why did he have to kill the old man during that story anyway? Couldn't he have just incapacitated him, or kidnapped him, or put him into stasis? I mean, we know for a fact that the kid had access to stasis tubes during that story. He put, you know, the original five in there, the time-displaced kids, and uh, I think the mimic was in there for a bit, too. Anyway, Emma pops the top off a flask and starts drinking a little bit. Nate asks why Apocalypse would do this to him. Uh, Why would he infect him with the techno-organic virus? Why did he create strife in the far-flung future? To which Emma says, hey... Why did Apocalypse do any of the things he did? And she reminds him that, uh, you know, he is the son of a great captain of Krakoa, and suggests that maybe he has this discussion with him. Oh, and she also tells him that Esme is still mad at him for ditching her last issue. Now, as they vacate the scene, Professor X emerges from his home, and it's not totally clear whether or not he heard what was being said there. Scene shift, and, uh... uh, Who's ready for more Jumbo Carnation and Hellfire Gala hype? Not me, but we're here anyway. Now Cyclops is being fitted for his ridiculous formal wear while Jumbo tells him he's going to look great. Cable arrives and Jumbo tells him that he'll need to do a fitting as well. Thankfully, it doesn't happen right away. And, uh, you know, judging from solicits, it probably never will. Cable asks his father if they can have a chat. Cyclops tells him they're going to have to walk and talk here because he just received a message from Emma about some goings down in London. Turns out there are some Iraqis causing a brouhaha at the pub. Wow, Araco, remember, remember we cared about them? It's nice that at least a couple of our writers remember that. So, through a gateway they go, which, as luck would have it, seems to deposit them right outside the particular pub in question. It's surrounded by the Metro Police who won't let our heroes anywhere near the ongoing crime scene. Cable hoodoos the duo into police costumes, take that jumbo carnation, and uh, they're allowed to pass. Cyclops cautions Cable about using his powers like that, which seems like one of those things he felt he had to say rather than actually wanted to. He then reminds his boy about the upcoming X-Men election, and how he feels as though Kid Cable would be a great fit. Cable replies, informing Scott that Marvel already spoiled the outcome of the vote online, and everybody already knows the Volume 6 lineup. Well, no, he doesn't actually say that, but I kind of wish he did. So into the pub they go, and we meet Castor and Pollux, two uh, healthy Iraqi women. They've had a night of heavy drinking, and from the looks of it, some heavy violence. Cyclops gives them the option of leaving peaceably, and uh, it comes as no surprise when they do not take him up on that offer. And so, we fight. 
As they do battle with their respective Iraqi, uh, Cable and Scott telepathically have their chat about strife. Now, Cyclops already knows where this is headed, and he attempts to nip it right in the bud. We ain't bringing the old man back. And uh, there are a handful of reasons why he might feel this way, yes? First, and perhaps most important to him anyway, he finally has a version of his son running around who's younger than he is. You know, Scott and Old Man Cable had a much weirder father-son dynamic. Kid Cable is one who Scott can mentor and actually be something of a father to. Second, there's that pesky rule about no dupes on Krakoa, which leads to our third reason. Now, the kid is proposing that he head back into the dystopian wasteland future so that he can make sure he becomes the old man, which Cyclops is not keen on. He tells his son that the old man's time is over, and now it's Nate's opportunity to, you know, cut his own path. Oh, and uh, all during this mental chat, the Iraqis are taken out. So there's that. Info page. Now, this kind of recaps everything related to the old man that we've learned over the years, uh, through extermination and into the Krakoan era. You know, his remains are in Deadpool's pool table. Well, you know, minus the time-traveling arm thing, I guess. Uh, We saw this in Cable number 3. His safe houses were destroyed, which we saw in X-Men The Exterminated Number 1, which we covered in Next Lives the Nation. The Grey Malkin station remains cloaked. That's something out of the 90s. Strife would compromise Cable's AI, known as the Professor. That was also from the 90s. We also learn that the media is calling this era AK, as in after Krakoa, which is kind of dumb. I mean, aren't there other things going on in the world? Uh, Now, Strife clones are swiping babies as part of the Order of X. And, uh, hey, did you all know the Hellfire Gala is only days away? Can can we please stop it? Can we please? Can we we can't get a friggin' info page without this? Come on. Anyway, we're back to comics and we're back with the old man. It's revealed here that he's carrying the light of Galador. Which kind of begs the question, which old man cable is this anyway? Is this the Kid Cable who did go back to the dystopian future? Anyway, he decapitates a would-be attacker in the hole that he fell in an issue or two back, and he threatens to do the same to the other two, and uh, that's where we leave it. Next episode, New Mutants number 17, and boy, it feels like it's been just about 100 years since the last time we looked at New Mutants. Not that I'm too excited to get back to Otherworld, but uh, hey, we'll get there. That's That's a conversation for next time. For now... Let's talk about this third-to-last issue of Cable. Well, there's not a whole heck of a lot to say here, is there? Um, I enjoyed it, but it's one of those things where, yeah, I liked it, but what do you say about it? We did get a neat little uh, discussion between Scott and uh, Nate. I thought that was pretty pretty well done. I like that uh, it feels like they're both being uh, somewhat selfish, but kind of masking it in altruism. You know, Scott might know that the best thing for the world or the best thing for this present crisis is for his son to go back into the future and bring back the old man, but, well, he doesn't want to let the young version go just yet, you know. Um, and uh, Cable, yeah, he's he's putting his, you know, uh, comfort in the forefront here. He wants to do right and doesn't think that he has it in him to uh, to win the day, so he needs the old man back. It's... A pretty interesting quandary here. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how this thing plays out here. I'm really wondering how uh, we're going to dismiss the kid and just how we're all going to react to the uh, to the dismissal or the exiling to the far-flung future. I think it's going to be a pretty 
perhaps um, you know heartrending little affair there. I'm definitely definitely looking forward to it. Now we also get the reveal that the old man in the you know other place other time uh, timeline here has with him the light of Galador, which old man Cable never had. Right. So the closest thing he had was that weird like spear. I think they called it like the the scimitar, but it was like spelled like psy, like psychic, like scimitar. Um, he had that in the lead up to the uh, the twelve storyline around the turn of the century. It was uh, something he carried. I, I don't remember where he got it. It's been forever since I read that, but uh, that's closest thing to a non-gun uh, regular armament that we've seen uh, Cable hold. So seeing him with the light of Galador now tells us that perhaps this Cable that we've been reading for the past. Uh, was a ten issues now in the uh, in the red world might be just a uh, an aged version of the one that we've been reading in the main story here. Just uh, a kid cable who went back to the dystopia and aged, you know. But only now he has uh, he has the light of Galador by his side. Other than that, not a whole heck of a lot to say. I mean, Phil Noto is still Phil Noto, and that's fantastic. Uh, Jerry Duggan still Jerry Duggan, and that's also fantastic. Um, like I've been saying over the past several episodes, I wish we would cool it a little bit with the Hellfire Gala stuff. For me, anyway, it's having like the reverse effect on uh, what I think it's supposed to be here. It's like I don't want to hear it. I understand we're getting a month of it at least. Um, I don't need to see it in almost every book we cover now, just to, as a lead up. It's almost one of those things that I wish they would have just given us like a free comic book day, um, you know, lead into the Hellfire Gala where we can watch people get, you know, sized up for their for their crazy outfits there. You know, we can do all the talking there and a little freebie, or even just a one shot. Uh, so long as it's not a five dollar one shot, but I don't think those sort of things exist anymore. Anyway, I'm taking the scenic route here just to say I'm tired of all the Hellfire Gala stuff, and uh, we've got a lot of it to cover uh, in the uh, coming episodes here, so uh, the fatigue is real. But uh, that'll do it for my thoughts on this issue of Cable. It was a fun issue. I'm really, really enjoying the series, and I will definitely miss it when it's gone. Now, we don't have any mailbag today, but considering this is the first of the month we're going to be taking a look into Marvel previews to see what books will be headed our way in July. This is all coming from uh, Marvel Tree Previews number 11, May for July 2021. And on our covers, our front cover is Moon Knight. So I guess we're giving Moon Knight another try, huh? Never been a big fan of Moon Knight. I always, uh, I think this is a common thing when people talk about Moon Knight. We talk about how we love the design, but, you know, then then the bell has to ring, right? Then the story has to start. And uh, I've never been never been thrilled enough with Moon Knight to stick around very, very long. Um, I remember when I was growing up, uh, Moon Knight was huge because of uh, Stephen Platt on the art. So people would go nuts uh, tracking those books down. And, I mean, they still demand uh, a pretty penny even, you know, 30 years later. But nobody talks about the stories, you know? Nobody really mentions what was going on inside the book. It was all about that plat artwork, which was fantastic, right? It was really, really cool looking. Uh, on the bright side here, Jed McKay is writing, who we enjoyed his stuff on Black Cat. So maybe yeah, maybe this will be all right. I won't be trying it. Uh, but uh, hey, if you do, hey, best to you. Back cover has X-Men Volume 6, number one, which, uh, well, we're going to be talking about right now. Let's get into the solicits here. X-Men number one, volume six, of course. These X-Men are fearless, is our tagline. Jerry Duggan, Pepe Larraz, five dollars. 
Into the blurb. Uh, the heroes of Krakoa are here to save the planet. Things might seem complicated between the nation of Krakoa and the rest of the world, but to the X-Men, things are simple. You do what's right. You protect those who need protecting, and you save the world we all share. Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Sunfire, Rogue, Wolverine, Sink, and Polaris are the chosen champions of mutant kind, and they will not shrink away from any battle for their home planet. Holy run-on sentences. Um, and, uh, huh. Two uses of the word planet. Hmm... Can't say that I'm a big fan of that, considering uh, I don't want space stuff. I really don't want space stuff. Can we just get X-Men stories? Um, Now, the cover is a fairly generic but beautiful action scene, um, though, in fairness, it's only one of the 700 or so covers that this book will ship with. We do get four pages of interior pencils, and they all look great, uh, if not a little bit generic. Uh, Some giant monster or robot appears to be attacking the city, and the X-Men leap into battle. Nothing we haven't seen before, nothing we haven't seen before many, many times, but, uh, hey, we're gonna see it again. I am definitely looking forward to it, uh, I just hope it stays, uh, with its feet planted on Earth, at least for a little while here. Next up, X-Men Legends number 5, which we probably won't be covering on the show, but for completionist's sake, we'll mention it here. Our headline is, Peter David returns to place a missing piece of the X-Factor puzzle. Peter David, Todd Knock, four bucks. Mutants have taken hostages, and X-Factor is taking the blame. But before judgment is rendered for Polaris, Havoc, Wolfsbane, Strong Guy, Quicksilver, and Madrox the Multiple Man, Val, Cooper, and X-Factor will take the stand. But who's telling the truth, and what really went down at the Latvarian Embassy? It all makes sense from a certain point of view. Hot courtroom action! Well, if this was anyone but Peter David, I'd probably be worried, but, uh... I have uh, all the faith in the world that he can make this uh, quite entertaining. Next up, X-Corp number three. Headline reads, Multiple Men, Multiple Solutions. Teeny Howard, Valentine, Delandro, four bucks. Blurb reads, He's everywhere you want to be. He's never not in the office, and his direct reports always fall in line. How does X-Corp meet their nearly impossible quotas with maximum synergy and minimal bandwidth? They've got Jamie Madrix, and he is the world's best boss. So, hot boardroom action. Uh, well, since it's Teeny Howard, I think I'm worried. Uh, <laughs> I, I've mentioned this every time we've covered uh, X-Corp in passing here. I'm not looking forward to this at all. As if the line isn't bloated enough as it is, we really need a series with uh, Warren Worthington and Monet St. Croix in, uh, in boardrooms. Really? Now, worth noting, I do like the cover here. Um, the cover has like a... Michael Scott from The Office vibe to it. Uh, we got Jamie holding a coffee mug with uh, the words World's Best Bosses on it. That's pretty cute. Um, don't know if it's worth four bucks for you. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not a completionist and you don't have a uh, podcast where you talk about every single book regardless, um, you may not need it. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. Next up, Way of X number four. The headline reads, Kill No Man... But some exceptions may apply. Cy Spurrier, Bob Quinn, four bucks. Nightcrawler must act fast to avoid catastrophe as the laws of Krakoa and physics are tested to their limits. Also, a nice family bonding sesh with no violent repercussions. Just kidding, this is Xavier vs. Legion in a boozed-up tiki bar with the sanity of mutant kind at stake. Well, this sounds like fun, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I... There's, there's like, no limit to the amount of nice things I can say about that first issue of Way of X. 
it's already bought a ton of goodwill with me here. Um, definitely looking forward to this here. I like these. This seems like it might be a quieter issue, uh, despite the you know the bombast of a uh, you know Xavier and Legion confrontation here. I do wonder if this is going to be like a heartfelt conversation between the two. I mean, people say things when they're drunk, right? That's when some truth and honesty might slip out. So this could be a lot of fun. Definitely looking forward to it. The cover has Nightcrawler getting in between Professor X and Legion while the uh, eyes of Krakoa look on. Children of the Atom number five. Kota's been captured, reads our headline. Uh, Vida Ayala, Paco Medina, four bucks. The blurb is, someone is out for revenge on the X-Men, and you'll never guess who. The children of the Atom, caught in the crossfires of the war on mutants, need a hero. And that hero might just be among them. Boy, I wonder if it's that guy Cole that we've seen a few times so far. Uh, We do finally get a cover that doesn't blend into the rest. And that's probably because the Coda kids make up very little of it. It's uh, mostly, you know... Famous characters, uh, more more popular mutants here, and and also Maggot, which will make our friend Evan Bevins very, very happy. Um, next up, Hellions 13, which, first of all, whew, it didn't get cancelled. That's a good thing. <laughs> the headline reads, Don't worry, Mr. Sinister is fine. Zeb Wells, Roge Antonio, four bucks. The blurb continues that statement with, eh, not really. And it looks like his clone is returning to Krakoa to claim the cape. And also destroy the Hellions. So, is this the Sinister from the Exit 10 story? The one that was killed by, uh, by uh, Tarn the Uncaring and his horde there? Uh, I wonder, uh, will the Hellions find out that Sinister set them up and then, you know, killed them? I, I definitely am looking forward to this. I can't wait. That sounds like it's going to be a really, really good one. Sword number seven. Headline reads, The morning after the night before. Al Ewing, Valerio Shidi, four bucks. The Hellfire Gala is over, but not all the guests have gone home. Victor Von Doom is staying for dinner. He's chatting to an old friend in a very new setting about thrones, empires, magic, mysterium, and the last annihilation. So there's our lead-in to the latest cosmic-level event that we're going to be sucked into. Um, I mean, Doom is fun. Definitely fun, uh, but I can't say as I'm necessarily chomping at the bit for this issue here. Uh, I guess we'll see. I'll reserve judgment till we get there. I mean, I haven't seen Al Ewing's take on Doom, but I think he'd probably have a good voice for him. So that could be uh, that could be a lot of fun, and maybe we'll find out what the hell Mysterium is, you know? Or maybe we'll just be totally enraptured with this story and be ready to jump in both feet to the uh, last annihilation and everything that comes with it. Probably not, but we'll we'll play it by ear. Wolverine number 14, The Usual Suspects, is our headline. Benjamin Percy, Adam Cubitt, four bucks, so Adam Cubitt's back. The blurb reads, Stolen goods, a torch ship, a missing sword, Wolverine's on the case, but what games, what mind games is Solemn playing? The new ex-villain comes into his own in this arc, so that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, Solemn is back. We met him during, you know, the lead-up to Exitens, of course. And I think we've been expecting him to return since X of Ten's wrapped up like a hundred years ago, so definitely down for it. I figure he probably still has his blade. Uh, don't know if Wolverine does. It might be somewhere on Krakoa, so looks like we're in for a round two. Just so long as it doesn't happen in hell, I'm, I'm down with it. Uh, X-Force, number 21, Fear of a Green Planet. Ben Percy, Robert Gill, four bucks. Beast plants the seeds, X-Force pulls the weeds, 
but not if Manslaughter has anything to say about it. And the cover features X-Force getting beat up by a Man-Thing-looking monster. I'm guessing that's Manslaughter, but uh, just another uh, vegetative threat for X-Force. I feel like every other arc we're dealing with um, some plant-based uh, bad guys, so here's more of that. New Mutants number 20, Weekend at Xavier's. Vida Ayala, Alex Linz, four bucks. In the heart of the wild hunt, schemers are dreaming. Deceptions are coming to light, and the dead are walking. Just another day on Krakoa for the new mutants. Well, first thing that sticks out is no Rodriguez, so that's too bad. Um, no mention of Otherworld either, so maybe that story wrapped up already? Fingers crossed? Uh, the cover has Amal Farouk looming over Scout, which... Uh, I mean, that's been the strongest part of this series to this point, so I'm definitely intrigued to see how that plays out. Marauders number 22. The past can still burn you. Jerry Duggan, Matteo Lali, four bucks. The Hellfire Gala may be over, but the flames of Hellfire past come licking at the heels of the inner circle. And it's worth noting here, the cover is actually a callback to Marauders number 2. However, instead of Sebastian Shaw, like, back-to-back with Emma as the Black King... It looks like we might have ourselves a Black Queen. I'm not entirely sure if it's Celine Gallo, though. Um, worth noting, she does get a little uh, little sketch in the uh, the Hellfire Gala guide, that little freebie that Marvel put out a few weeks ago. So, yeah, it could be Celine. Excalibur number twenty-two, the Tower and the Storm. Teeny Howard, Marcus Toe, four bucks. The blur breeds with Captain Britain and Excalibur reunited. Otherworld is their domain. Well, F me running. Um, an escort mission reveals deep political unrest among Saturnine's court, and a beautiful sacrifice, a brutal sacrifice bears fruit. Anybody care? Anybody? Um, mm. uh, worth noting, Rogue is not on the cover, so for her sake, I can only hope she escaped this horrible book when she uh, joined the X Men. <sighs> Guardians of the Galaxy number 16. The last annihilation starts here. Al Ewing won for Gary four bucks. The entire galaxy is under attack. What again? The likes of which haven't been seen since Annihilus first waged war. So, (laughs) nothing like Empire King in Black then, right? Now, five different planets are simultaneously under threat from a mysterious foe. This is what the new Guardians were built to do. But will it be too much? This summer, the war to end all wars begins, and not everyone's going to come home. I feel like we've already read this one, like at least a half dozen times, right? Um, I'm going to throw this in the DCBS order just in case, uh, but if there's no sword in it right away, I'm not sure we'll be devoting an entire episode to it. We might just use what happens in it as kind of a catch-up for when S.W.O.R.D. does get involved. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that. We got a ton of collected editions uh, being offered this month here. We have the Excalibur Omnibus Volume 2, uh, Alan Davis, Scott Lobdell, etc. This includes Excalibur number 35 through 67. A trio of uh, prestige format one-shots here, Excalibur Weird War 3. Excalibur Air Apparent, and Excalibur XX Crossing. We've got Sensational She-Hulk number 26, and uh, materials from Marvel Comics Presents issues 75 and 110. 
This sucker's going to weigh in at 1,080 pages and have a $125 price tag. Next up, a Captain Britain omnibus. Uh, Chris Claremont, Alan Davis, Alan Moore, Dave Thorpe, etc. This includes Captain Britain 1 through 39, Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain issues 231 to 247, Hulk comic number 1, then number 3 through 46, Incredible Hulk Weekly, issues 47 to 55, then 57 to 63. Marvel Superheroes, number 377 to 388. Daredevils, 1 through 11. The Mighty World of Marvel, issues 7 through 16. Captain Britain, volume 2, I guess, 1 through 14. Marvel Tales, 131 through 133. Marvel Team-Up, issues 65 and 66. New Mutants Annual, number 2, and X-Men Annual, number 11. Now, when uh, we started the uh, X-Lapsed Origins series over at Chris's on Infinite Earths, we started with the Marvel superheroes, uh, right about in the middle of this thing here. These are uh, short stories. That's why there's so many of them. Uh, You know, they're anywhere between four to eight pages long, usually. So it's a lot of stuff there. This this omnibus weighs in at 1,368 pages of stuff that... I'm guessing a lot of us haven't read, or not in its entirely any, entirety anyway, so that might be a, uh, well, I can't say it's $125 well spent, but if you find it at, uh, you know, DCBS or, you know, in stock trades for half of that, yeah, maybe it might be worth it. We've got the Curse of the Man-Thing trade paperback. Steve Orlando, Francesco Mobley, Marco Fila, and Andrea Bricardo. Now this collects the three Curse of the Man-Thing number ones. Now, now the story that we're actually going to discuss from this on the show ought to have a big old number three on it, but it doesn't. And I'm not going to reward Marvel's bad behavior by buying the Avengers and Spider-Man issues. We're just going to have to hope that, when we get to it, they do a good enough job recapping the first two issues. Um, Otherwise, I mean, who cares? It's Man-Thing. 112 pages, $16. Now we have a whole bunch of uh, current year stuff being collected. X-Men by Jonathan Hickman, Volume 3. This collects X-Men Volume 5, 16 through 20, 136 pages, 16 bucks. Hellions by Zeb Wells, Volume 2, collecting Hellions 7 through 12, 160 pages, 17.99. New Mutants by Vida Ayala, Volume 1, collects New Mutants 14 through 18, 136 pages, 16 bucks. X-Force by Ben Percy, Volume 3, collects X-Force 15 through 20 and Wolverine number 13, 184 pages, 20 bucks. X-Factor by Leia Williams, Volume 2, of two, apparently. This collects X-Factor issues 6 through 10, 136 pages, 16 bucks. Marauders by Jerry Duggan, Volume 3, collects Marauders 16 through 20, 136 pages, 16 bucks. Excalibur by Teeny Howard, Volume 3, collects Excalibur 16 through 21, 160 pages, 18 bucks. Reign of X, Volume 2. Now, this collects New Mutants, number 14, Marauders, number 16, Excalibur 16, X Force 15 and 16, and X Men, number 17. 160 pages, 18 bucks. Then we also have a, like a pre order here for Reign of X, Volume 3, which will be available in August. This collects Marauders 17, New Mutants 15, Cable 7, Wolverine 8 and 9. 160 pages, 18 bucks. Worth uh, noting for completionism here, we do have the Mighty Marvel Masterworks, the X-Men Volume 1, which reprints the first 10 issues of X-Men from uh, 1963 to 1965 or so. 
240 pages for 16 bucks. That's not a bad price for that many pages. So if you've never read those early issues or never read them in color like like I haven't, uh, this one might be worth uh, snagging, especially if you can get it at a uh, deep discount. That's almost giving it away. So let's go week to week here and find out what we'll be spending to keep up with these books. Now, July 7th of 2021, we have Children of the Atom number 5, Hellions number 13, X-Force 21, and X-Men Volume 6 number 1. That's a $17 week. July 14th, 2021, we have Excalibur 22, Way of X number 4, and X-Corp number 3. $12, and oh boy, um, outside of Way of X, that's a rough week, isn't it? Um, now, 721-21, we've got Marauders 22. New Mutants number 20, X-Men Legends number 5, and Guardians of the Galaxy number 16. So, depending on your mileage here, it could be an $8 week if you leave out X-Men Legends and Guardians of the Galaxy, or it could be a $16 week if you get them both. Finally, uh, 728-21, we got Sword number 7 and Wolverine number 14, so only $8 for the final week here. All, all told, 53 bucks, which sadly is a very, very cheap month. It's to the point where I almost feel like I'm leaving something out. But that will do it for today. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do so several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could also call into the brand new X-Lapsed voicemail. You can call 623-396-5375 or 623-396-JERK. You know, as in Professor X is a... The number went live uh, about a day or two ago, and we already have a, a couple of uh, voicemails in there, so I'm looking forward to getting to those real, real soon. Uh, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com for uh, blog posts and show notes, and you can head to Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And uh, if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and all that good stuff. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Now, that's where we will leave it. I would like to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day. I really, really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 204 of X-Lapsed, where, uh... Hey, let's talk a little bit. Let's talk for a minute here. Um, you know, we're, we're recently back uh, after a little bit of a break here because of uh, the DCBS order taking its sweet time to get here. So we were doing the essential stuff for a little while, and uh, usually while I'm doing that, I'm kind of chomping at the bit to get back into the current year stuff here. Very excited to see what uh, the next month's worth of books will uh, will give to us. And, uh, well, uh, <laughs> this time out, uh, the first three books that we're covering are... Well, they're not great. Um, last episode we did the Man-Thing episode, which was... Ugh. This time we're doing Children of the Atom, which is more eh. And then next time, um, I've already written the script for this one, we're doing X-Corp. And uh, I would like to apologize in advance for that, and also apologize in retrospect to books like Fallen Angels and uh, the Empire uh, Cash-In miniseries, because we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, X-Corp will be... Something else. Um, <laughs> it's these days where it's a it's a little more difficult to become motivated to do these uh, these episodes here. So we're gonna make the best of it. Thankfully, this is Children of the Atom, and it's more of a meh than a uh. So uh, let's get right into it. This is Children of the Atom number three, had a July 2021 cover date. Story's called Unusual Dinner Guests, written by Vida Ayala, art by Paco Medina, colors David Curiel, letters VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson, Andros, Andrews Belastaros, White, and Sobolski. Cover price four bucks, went on sale May 12, 2021. Now this time out, it looks like Carmen is going to be the voice in our heads here. Uh, we've seen over the past, well, I mean... The first two issues, I guess, uh, we've had a different narrator for each one out of our five team members here. Now here, we see her think about how all she's ever wanted out of life is to feel special. Which, you know, makes her very, very unique, doesn't it? You know, I, 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 I gotta say, I've always wanted to be, like, wildly mediocre and host an X-Men podcast that nobody cared about, so mission accomplished for me. Now, she's getting ready to start live-streaming her cosplay knitting web show or whatever, and her mother is a bit worried that she's skipping breakfast to do so, but her dad is proud of her work ethic. So, Carmen gathers all her gear while thinking about how she's nobody's favorite. Now, she's worried that the uh, Kota kids will only keep her around because she makes them costumes. Now, while she's waxing on about how nobody likes her, she receives a couple of text messages which basically disprove the point. Now, one is from Cole, that uh, basketballer we met the other uh, issue, where who is definitely not a mutant, right? He is certainly has no powers or anything, right? Now, he invites her to dinner and says that she could even bring her weirdo mutant-obsessed friends with her if she'd like. Now, speaking of weirdo mutant-obsessed friends, the other text is from Buddy, who is anxiously awaiting Carmencita's live stream. And we get the impression here that Carmen might just have the hot pants for Buddy. Anyway, from here, Carmen hits the record button and falls right into her peppy online persona. And her name here is Faintly Frosted Stitches. Now, I'm not sure if that's just a cute name, or if there's a pun or a reference in there that I'm just missing because I know very, very little about popular culture. Double page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters are Cherub, Marvel Guy, Cyclops Last, Gimmick, and Daycrawler, so... 
I guess that means we're already done with Nighty Nightcrawler, which is a good thing. Next up, an info page, and it's an auction website where people can bid on X-Men paraphernalia. Now, this one is for six shards from Magneto's helmet, circa a pre-Krakoa attack on New York City. Now, I think he's attacked New York City a few times, so I couldn't say exactly if this is referring to something specific. Now, these images here are Kirby. Uh, I think they're from X-Men number one. Uh, the horns on his helmet sure look like X-Men number one, uh, which we have discussed over on the Essential X-Lapsed, and uh, that is kind of our sister show to Original Recipe X-Lapsed, what we cover while uh, we wait for books to arrive. So if you want to hear some Silver Age uh, musings, check out Essential X-Lapsed. It's available in the archives. Now, whatever the case, this is here to show us that Carmen, as Faintly Frosted Stitches, bought those shards for 500 bucks plus 20 bucks shipping and handling. So, uh, you know, where does she get these wonderful toys? Uh, Mutant eBay, I guess. Back to comics, and we're in the then. Now, this is a flashback land that we didn't even know, or possibly care, existed. And it's our Kota kids in space. Like, for real. The Kotas are on board a spaceship, and they're freaking the F out. Well, Buddy and Carmen seem to be handling it okay. It's just the dudes who are losing their minds. Because, well, they're dudes, I guess? I don't know. The ship then blows an engine or something, and so our kids are probably going to die. This is a flashback, of course. Uh, Buddy gets caught in an explosion, which unfortunately doesn't seem to have given her any superpowers, just KO'd her for a little bit. Carmen rushes to her side because, A, she's got the hot pants for her, and B, guys are useless, you see. I cannot stress that enough. Men are completely useless. It says so right here. Back to the present. Gabe and Buddy have arrived at Carmen's house, and it's here that we meet the twins. I think during the first issue, there was a bit of particularly clunky dialogue where Carmen mentioned the twins while she was also talking about J.J. and Benny. So I took that to mean that J.J. and Benny were twins. So, uh, my bad, I guess. Also, clunky dialogue and lack of context's bad as well. Uh, Carmen's mother refers to Gabe and Buddy as her other kids, which tells us that they must hang out there a lot. Info page. It's a social media post from Carmen regarding faintly frosted stitches, and it's uh, it's about cosplay, and it's dull. Uh, she says there's nothing wrong with replicating elements of a costume if that's what you want to do. She also says, quote, drip worthy of a queen, unquote, which I think is what one might say while producing a urine sample. Back to comics, and Carmen is wrapping up some edits on a video. Huh, imagine editing a video. I don't have many videos out there, but I assure you they're all one-takes, <laughs> because I haven't the foggiest idea how to even begin editing video. On that note, I did just uh, live-stream my opening of my DCBS order for the uh, May books over on the Facebook group, which is, uh, I'm sure is wildly entertaining to see some idiot holding a box. So if you want to see an idiot holding a box, that's where you go to. Anyway... Gabe and Buddy are there, and it's uh, pretty clear that Carmen does, in fact, have the hot pants for Buddy. They talk a bit about Cole, and Buddy suggests that he might be a mutant. And instead of just rolling their eyes and saying, again with this mutant crap, the other two kind of just earnestly ponder it. Buddy suggests that they maybe ought to try using Cole to solve their Krakoan gateway quandary. Carmen thinks this is a uh, kind of a scummy thing to do. You know, using someone who she considers to be a good friend, and, uh, well, she's not wrong. Carmen decides that she's not even going to attend this dinner. She says that she doesn't feel good, 
And, uh, I mean, that might sound like an excuse, but we will soon find out that it's not, because we're going to see just how not good she feels in just a little bit. Now, the rest of the Coda Goofs will go to this dinner. Worth noting, Buddy cannot seem to keep her hands to herself here. She is constantly rubbing up and hugging on Carmen, which, you know, might be, uh, you know, mixed messages a little bit. Uh, let's jump back into flashback land. Uh, the ship, the spaceship, is about to explode. The Coda kids are strapped into escape pods, which is mighty convenient. Carmen attempts to declare her love for Buddy, but the racket of the exploding ship is far too loud to shout over, and the pods crash down in the Adirondacks. Back to the present, we're at Cole's apartment. Now, Cole's fathers are joined by this dude with huge hands. Like, he almost looks like Apocalypse in a skin suit. Very bizarre. He's introduced as Arthur Nagin, who we learn via a quick cross-referencing of the Marvel Wiki is actually Gorilla Man, which is a ton more boring than Apocalypse in a skin suit. Now, it's worth noting, I guess Gorilla Man isn't part of any wiki that Buddy is writing or cross-referencing or even looking at because nobody here recognizes him. And I mean, dude is friggin' massive, so a red flag or two wouldn't be unwarranted. I mean, he, I don't know how this dude fits through doors. Meanwhile, back at Carmen's, she's struck with a strange and sudden pain. Hmm. Now, we'll be checking back with her throughout this dinner party. Back at Cole's, Negan is revealed as being part of a project called Real Unity, which sounds like any number of projects that we've read over the past 60 years of X-Men stories where humans attempt to splice themselves or inject themselves with mutant powers. Back at Carmen's, she rushes toward the bathroom. Hmm. Back to Cole's, it's revealed that while Cole was deathly ill, his dad's turned to Real Unity for help. Now, Nagin spouts a ton of apocalypse things about Darwin and survival of the fittest. One of Cole's dads says that uh, this is only due to Nagin and his research that Cole was saved. Back to Carmen's, where she is throwing up into a sink? Come on, kid, there's a toilet right there. Don't puke in the sink. That's disgusting. She then collapses. Let's go back to Cole's. We learn more about real unity. Cole was implanted with some mutant tissue, which aided in his healing process. And so he's kind of half-mutant, half-human right now. I don't know if we would consider this post-human. I don't know. Buddy makes things awkward by suggesting out loud that Cole ought to help them test the Krakoan gateways. Cole then realizes that these goofballs are only there to use him. He becomes wildly offended and kicks them all the F out. And I gotta say, good man, you know, he lasted longer with these idiots than I would have. Now we wrap up at the conclusion of the spaceship flashback. The Coda Kids survived. I mean, imagine that. A flashback featuring characters we're following in the present, ending with none of those characters dying. Hmm. Oh, and also, uh, Carmen might be a mutant? Or she's part of the Vampire Nation? Uh, I don't know, the art here really doesn't give us much. Uh, There's definitely some sort of bestial transformation going on in her. Maybe she's got a brood baby inside her? I really couldn't tell you. It's, uh... It's nebulous, and I suppose it, it ought to be for a cliffhanger. Anyway, that's where we leave it. Next episode, X-Corp, and I am sorry. But that is, thankfully, a discussion for another day. Let's now talk about, well, what little there is to talk about uh, regarding this issue of Children of the Atom. And, I mean, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, despite the fact that I consistently <laughs> do so, but... uh with three issues in, right? Uh, the first two issues were basically the same story told twice. Here we're getting 
a little bit of progression here, intermixed with this weird out of nowhere flashback. I, I really, I just don't know. Uh, this really isn't doing a whole lot for me here, and it really speaks to the ridiculous levels of bloat that are uh, that are now infecting the X Men line of books here. Don't know why this is necessary. Um, don't know why it uh, requires quite this many pages to be told. I don't know, we're doing this slow burn here in a time where I don't know that we can afford to do so. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be like a done in five or a done in six. I sort of hope it's a miniseries, but we haven't been told uh, either way. This might just be a Marvel thing where everything's a miniseries or anything, everything's an ongoing until they decide it's not. So, um, I don't know, I guess we'll have to see. Now, the out-of-nowhere flashback scene to the spaceship, uh, we don't know how the kids found a spaceship, got on board a spaceship. I suppose maybe it really doesn't matter. It's just all we need to know is that they did. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, these X-Books are really into the space crap, unfortunately, so um, I guess that fits the uh, the tone and tenor of the line. But uh, trying to figure out what the point of it is here, other than to show us that uh, that Buddy and Carmen are cool under pressure and the guys are blithering idiots, because we got to be reminded of that, of course. I don't know if maybe the trauma has caused a triggering of Carmen's uh, mutant abilities or inhuman abilities or whatever the hell ability she has, or if maybe she was infected with uh, with Brood. Who knows? The last image we see of Carmen looks very much like uh, one of those where someone has been infected with a Brood, you know, like kind of gets like a, a bit of a snout, uh, teeth get pointy. It, it looked very broody. It was the first thing that popped to mind for me here. Well, the second thing. At first, I was like, oh, maybe she's a vampire, because it looked a lot like uh, the Vampire Nation stuff that we're seeing over in Wolverine. But who knows? I guess time will tell. Um, now, the flashback here, I feel like they, they missed out on something they could have done. And, of course, this is me wildly, you know, uh, armchair quarterbacking here. But why not give the, why not have a sixth kid? You know, why not have a sixth kid on board for the, uh, for the flashback who didn't make it, or who was just lost and maybe will come back later or something. Just give us a reason, give us something different, right? Give us a reason to want to go back to this flashback and think about it rather than like, oh, these random kids somehow commandeered a spaceship, took off into space, and then crashed down and survived? I don't know, like, is this going to be like a Challenges of the Unknown sort of thing where... You know, they, they beat death, and now they're going to just continually challenge the unknown? I really don't know. And now that we're, what, like 13, 14, 15 bucks into this series, we're going to need uh, more of a reason to, to care about this, to invest our, our time and energy into caring about these characters. Uh, let's hop over to Cole and the whole, um, what was it called? The Real Unity Project here. Nothing we haven't seen before, right? I mean, this is something that's come up in X-Men comics for a very long time now, where we use mutant DNA or mutant tissues to, to you know, to give people powers, right? To give people a leg up. Um, was it Sublime or, like, the U-Men or whoever it was, I think, around the time of the Morrison run was, uh, was injecting themselves with mutant abilities or something. This is nothing new under the sun here. Though, in fairness, it does give us something a little bit different as for what I was expecting from Cole, I, I figured Cole was just going to be revealed as being a mutant and then be viewed as an idol to our uh, Coda kids. 
And here we find out that, uh, well, maybe that's not the case, right? Maybe it's just that he had this tissue, uh, you know, put into his body, and now he's sort of this half-human, half-mutant sort of thing who can exhibit these, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, superpowers, right? He's really, really good on the basketball court, as we saw back in the first issue. And uh, here, you know, he's uh, he's healthy. He came back from the, the brink of death due to this uh, Real Unity project. So, um... I guess that's something a little bit different from what I was expecting, which is cool. Now, Buddy's reaction to hearing this, uh, rather than just like sitting there and nodding and being like, "Oh, it's a you know, it's a miracle that you came back to life here," she instead suggests that they use him to uh, to bust through the Krakoan gateways. And I mean, that just speaks to uh, Buddy's uh, obsession with mutants and. Uh, Lack of tact, I suppose uh, This is very odd She probably should have discussed this with her teammates Before being like, hey Hey Cole and his dads and this weird ape man uh, How about we use you to cross into Krakoa Seems like a misreading of the room at the uh, very least But I guess that's uh, kind of the character they're going with With Buddy here I mean, it's fairly clear From everything we've seen Every scene that we've witnessed Where uh, Carmen and Buddy are you know, close It's very apparent that uh, Carmen has feelings for Buddy, of course uh, We saw that in the uh, gym back in the first issue uh, We're seeing it now uh, And we've got Buddy Who maybe is just kind of out to lunch Maybe she enjoys the attention We really don't know But she's all hugging up on Carmen uh, She considers her best friend And doesn't realize there's a whole lot more to it uh, She even goes back You know, we go back to that first issue where she has feelings for uh, Gabe um, Buddy has feelings for Gabe But she won't pursue them because she thinks that Carmen and Gabe have something going together here So we have ourselves in uh, you know, a bizarre love triangle Which at the rate we're going will probably play itself out in issue uh, 98 of this book With how slow it's going But uh, don't have a whole lot more to say about this uh, was, uh, Not much happened, which... I mean, if you're trying to establish a new thing here with the Children of the Atom, we need to move a little bit faster than this. We need to pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, that's just me as a, as a you know, single-issue reader. You know, of course, Marvel and the comics industry in general really don't you know, give a rat's ass about the, the weekly and monthly reader. This is all about the trade. So maybe when this is collected in a five- or six-issue trade, it'll, it'll read very, very well. That unfortunately just does a disservice to those of us who are uh, who are putting down the money to facilitate those collections. It's, I guess, it's just the way comics are these days. Uh, the art was okay. The art was okay. It's worth saying, but I uh, really don't have a whole heck of a lot more to say about it. Uh, if you agree or disagree, I would love to hear from you. Uh, speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. We we got a couple of letters. We're gonna start with Damien, who's talking about Marvel's Voices number one. He says, I love the idea of this series of specials. It's great that many Marvel creators have expanded the profile of heroes, but this is often done by straight, white, cisgendered men, and for true diversity, we need to expand the pool of creators. The possible downside is that it's very hard to write a great short story, and therefore it's difficult for writers to turn their presence in these books into regular work. Marvel could use this project solely as a mask of progression whilst continuing to rotate their top books between the same small group of men. And yeah... Um, I think you are right on the money here. Um, 
this seems, and I mean, the first time we covered this was this book here, Marvel's Voices Number 1. That was the first one of these um, initiative uh, anthologies that we've covered. Since then, we've looked at the indigenous voices, we've looked at legacy, and we've looked at uh, women of Marvel, which isn't the same thing, but it is an anthology dedicated to diversifying or showing the diversification of the talent pool. And when we started with this one, I was very, very happy to see it. It felt like a uh, like a true celebration, this very first issue, where it's like, okay, we're going to give people an opportunity here. We're going to try to grow every aspect of uh, the comics industry. We're going to try to grow the talent pool. We're going to try to grow the roster of characters. We're going to try to grow the readership. I didn't see anything negative about this, which... Might just be me not seeing the forest for the trees. I did receive uh, an email from the other Chris a few weeks ago where uh, it was a very challenging email where he kind of called me out on being a little too a little too kid gloves on this. And he considered it uh, a patronizing sort of outing, which he's not completely without point, right? Um, as you state here, Damien, Marvel could use this project solely as a mask of progression. And um, I, I think when we covered the Women of Marvel thing, I, I think I alluded to something like that, you know, like this is more about virtue signaling than actually providing an, an opportunity for some talented uh, female creators. This was just a this was just like an attempt at getting like a little blurb on like the uh, Entertainment Weekly website. It's like, hey, look what Marvel's doing rather than. Hey, we got some really talented writers here. How about you check this stuff out? It was more about the headline rather than the actual um, material within. And as we go through these voices, one-shots, it, it feels more and more like it's becoming about the sizzle and not the steak, for lack of a better term here. It's all about, the hey, we can do a full-page ad in our Marvel previews, that says, hey, look at us, look at what we're doing here, rather than actually giving these talented creators an opportunity to really show their stuff and flex their creative muscle in these books here. I mean, in the Women of Marvel thing, we were getting one-pagers, one-page gag strips, where uh, Medusa's getting her hair done, and Lady Deathstrike's getting her nails done. It just feels like a real disservice. And, uh... An indictment of the, as you put it here, a possible downside to this whole initiative is it's hard to write a short story, especially with a new creator, right? A new creator who might not have all their kinks taken out in writing a regular length story might be even more encumbered by having to fit their their story into a single page, two pages, four pages, uh, you know, if they're lucky enough to get six pages in one of these specials. It's still a challenge, right? And it also is a place where they can just put these creators, Marvel, that is. They can put these creators there, say they're giving opportunity, but not really sticking the landing. Now, that takes me to the next thing you wrote here, which I don't know a whole lot about this guy. So I don't know if this is sarcastic or not. But uh, Damien says, on a completely unrelated note, I write this comment the day after Marvel announced that Donny Cates is replacing Al Ewing on The Hulk, which shows their commitment to diverse hiring. I think you're being sarcastic, but I'm not sure because I don't know much about Donny Cates other than the fact that he's like responsible for like a third of Marvel's output. So I'm guessing you're using that as an indictment of Marvel rotating their top books, uh, you know, between the same group of folks there. So that's interesting to know. I, I didn't hear that news just yet. I'm 
I stopped following the Hulk a little while ago, so uh, I really couldn't say what was going on with them. But if you were being sarcastic there, then your your point is well taken, because this is just giving someone who gets plenty of high-profile work at Marvel getting even more. Damien continues, On to the actual comics. I mainly enjoyed the Forge and Shuri story and the Wolverine one drawn by Sanford Green. It makes me feel hopeful for Children of the Atom and makes me want to pick up Bitter Root, which is the same creative team as the Madripoor story. I've always loved Sanford Green's art. I was the person who bought that Wonder Girl mini that he drew, and he's getting better. Yeah, the ones that we read here, I thought they were uh, they were mostly harmless, but there was some uh, some good stuff there, right? We did see the first appearance of the characters we talked about today, the Children of the Atom, getting Forge's autograph at the end of that one. That's the entire reason why I ran out and bought the damn thing. But the stories that we read, we were, you know, a Just the X-Men sort of a show. They were okay. None of them were offensive. They were, they were good. They were good. Damien continues, My personal favorite was the Luciano Vecchio Pride March story, which you didn't cover. I suppose the X characters were in the background. That I didn't notice. If I knew they were in the background, I probably would have covered it just as a, a completionist. But, uh... I haven't read that one. I really, I haven't read anything that hasn't been X-Men uh, in any of these anthologies. Maybe I should. I don't know, because, I mean, the X-Men have never been, for the longest time, they haven't been, like, a priority at Marvel. So maybe, maybe the better stories are the non-X-Men stories. Don't know. Damien wraps up with a good initiative, but hopefully not the limit of Marvel's commitment to, vi- to, di- to diversity. Easy for me to say. I agree. I agree 100%. I fear that, uh, I mean, after seeing the follow-ups to this Marvel Voices uh, issue here with uh, Indigenous Voices, Legacy, and, uh, I mean, to an extent, Women of Marvel, I really don't know. I really don't know. They they fall into that X-Men Unlimited territory of just being stories that don't matter. It might not be the best forum for... Uh, some of these writers trying to get noticed, some of these creators trying to get noticed, but uh, I suppose it's uh, it's a step in the right direction, right? It is a uh, it's better than it was, so there's that. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about the Marvel's voices. I've been very much looking forward to your thoughts on it, and uh, I am also looking forward to your thoughts on these subsequent issues. So thank you so much. Next up, we got Evan talking about X Men number eighteen. He says, not much to say about the issue, except I'm glad to see Sink back. As for the pacing of the stories and reveals, it feels like Hickman has a big structure that other writers are filling in with varying degrees of quality and success. We got Hoxpox, then the Festival of Swords, then the Hellfire Gala, then Inferno, and there are the other books as well. That's probably an oversimplification, but it doesn't feel like he's very involved with the other books. Come for the Hickman, stay for the Duggan, Wells, Williams, and company. And yeah, that's something that I believe, uh, I don't know if this wound up in the episode or if it was on the cutting room floor, but uh, I talked about that with uh, Ed Moore during the 200th episode, where we were trying to figure out if Hickman was all that involved here, and it seemed like his involvement is, is getting lesser and lesser as we move forward here, where he's just sticking to that one story he wants to tell, and then the other writers kind of have to, they, gotta, they have to kind of world build, right? He's got his ideas. I mean that's the Hickman that's the Hickman strength, right? It's these big ideas that are that are interesting, right? They're interesting, but they're not chock full of characterization, right? They're not chock full of follow through. 
they're kind of, they're not quite a square peg going into a round hole. They're more of like an octagon-shaped peg going into a round hole. So, like, it kind of fits, but it also kind of doesn't. It needs a little bit of sanding and massaging to make it work. Uh, and the other writers here are doing, they're doing all the heavy lifting. And that's a true testament to them, since another thing that I've brought up as we've gone through these things is like, how come so many of these stories take place in Madripoor and Otherworld? And uh, one of the things I thought about was, well, maybe those are places Hickman says, hey, have fun there. You know, maybe those places don't really affect or contradict the stories he wants to tell. You know, that's why we have Wolverine fighting vampires, right? It has nothing to do with post-humanity, with the Hoxpox premise. It's just a story being told that's kind of inoffensive. It's kind of off the beaten path. It feels like it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but maybe that's kind of the point, right? Now, Evan continues. As for my stab at some sinister secrets, which was something that I uh, covered uh, again in the uh, X-Men 18 episode here, it's just a, uh, a way to go back to the beginning and see if any of these sinister secrets that were posited in the early books had been addressed or ignored or contradicted here. Evan says, when you reread number nine, which reads... They say the kids are all right, but all is not right in paradise. This non-couple couple has been apart too long. Friends are expecting that when they see each other again, fireworks are going to ensue. Is the universe ready? Judging by how unprepared everyone was, was for what's happened so far, we kind of doubt it. Evan says, I first thought the reference to the kids meant the issues a new mutants are dealing with now, but the non-couple couple could be mistaken destiny, since they weren't officially acknowledged as a couple until more recently. The fireworks could mean burning Krakoa to the ground, and looking back at that issue, there was a sinister secret revealed that referenced Inferno. That's possible. That is certainly possible here. As you said here, the sinister secret revealed right under sinister secret number nine says, We don't hear this word spoken often, so when we do, it's best to pay attention, because when you square that circle, what took a long time to build can come crumbling down rather quickly, and then the word Inferno appears in brackets. So... Definitely could be. I, I don't remember who wrote in to suggest that number nine was a reference to a relationship between Jubilee and Chamber, which uh, we actually just talked about over on uh, Generation X Lapsed. They had a uh, they had a relationship, which I don't know has ever been uh, referenced again since uh, that book went away. Now you got fireworks. I, I guess it stands to reason that it could be Jubilee, but uh, who knows? Uh, Evan continues. As for Sinister's possible knowledge of the future, what if Sinister Secret 11 suggests not precognition, but time travel, a Sinister from the future operating among the clones since he was first contacted by Xavier and Magneto? And boy, doesn't that just open up a whole can of worms here, right? Um, I think we've been focusing so much on, on you know the precogs here, the destinies who can't be brought back that... I mean, we uh, we haven't really paid much uh, attention to the fact that, I mean, this is the Marvel Universe. Time travel happens with regularity. So, I mean, there, there stands to reason here that uh, there are characters who can go to the future and find out what happened, or go to the past and find out what happened here. I really don't know how you tell such a story, because it kind of unravels everything, not just about uh, the X-Men, but about basically the entire Marvel Universe, right? I mean, what's to stop... Mystique from going back in time and, and killing Moro. It's to stop any of these characters from going anywhere and doing anything. You know, this is the, uh, 
you know, the Back to the Future, uh, you know, sports almanac, right? This is knowledge of the future, which can very much change the past. It's it's interesting. And, and you know, I don't know what the current um, rules of time travel are in the Marvel Universe. Like, if you go back in time and change something, is that a splinter effect? Like, do we break the timeline off and go a different direction? Or does it overwrite the current timeline? I think it's gone both ways. And I, I think... Oh boy, who was it? Was it Mark Grunewald who had the rules about time travel? I think since uh, since Grunewald's passing, they really haven't um, paid much mind to uh, the rules of uh, time travel. So your guess is as good as mine, but that is a great theory that, yeah, maybe uh, maybe a sinister knows, not through precognition, but through uh, just knowing because he saw it. It's definitely a heavy, heavy theory, and I'd love to hear from uh, other folks on what their thoughts are on such a uh, potentially, you know, uh, world-breaking theory that uh, we're uh, floating here. But I want to thank you so much for writing in, Evan. It really, really means a lot, and uh, that will do it for the mailbag. Uh, If you would like to write in and chat me up about anything your heart desires, I would love for you to do so. I'm begging you. To do so, you can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90s X Men. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X Lapsed voicemail hotline thing at 623-396-JERK. You can head to chrisoninfiniteearth.com for blog posts and show notes. You can chat us up on Facebook where I'm currently complaining about X Corp. So if you'd like to join in on that conversation, please. We invite you. We would love to see you there, and uh, we would love to hear from you, whether you agree, disagree, or uh, are indifferent altogether. I would love to hear from you all the same. That is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on every noise aggregation, blah, 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 that the Internet has. And if you like what you hear there, or uh, at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two. It would really mean the world to me and uh, the show. So uh, I thank you all in advance for that. And I also thank you for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 210 of X-Lapsed, where we stand on the precipice of the Hellfire Gala here. This is the eve of the gala, and uh, episode 210, so that puts us 100 episodes after we stood on the precipice of X of Swords. I haven't the foggiest idea how this worked out this way, but... Uh, yeah, the first part of X of Tens and uh, the first part of the Hellfire Gala will be... Exactly 100 episodes apart I would like to say that I planned that <laughs> I would like to say that I have Such a really good forethought Perhaps a little bit of ESP But uh, no, no, this is all happenstance It just uh, just so happens that it turned out this way So, pretty cool stuff uh, That said, we have a pretty cool issue of X-Men today It's the penultimate issue of Volume 5 of X-Men And let's get into it This is X-Men Volume 5, number 20 had a July 2021 cover date. The story is called Lost Love. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Francesco Mobili. Colors Sunny Go. Letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Edits Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price four bucks. Went on sale May 26th of 2021. And uh, this one, if I'm remembering right, this issue got pushed back a little bit for reasons that, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe you guys do. But, uh, I remember even when we looked at this issue in the uh, the solicitations, it said art to be determined. <laughs> we didn't even know who the artist was going to be on this, which really made me feel like this was going to be kind of an afterthought sort of issue. And we're about to find out that uh, no, no, this is a vital issue and this is a very good issue. So let's hop in. Now we open and we're in flashback land. We're at the Oracle. Now this is Mystique's underground bunker home on Krakoa. And we can see that she's got a destiny mask there. It's kind of hovering, maybe kind of like a shrine of sorts. Uh, Mystique looks at it, and she considers what uh, she's about to try doing here. Uh, she seems a bit conflicted, a little bit uh, preoccupied. From here, she meets up with another one of her former lovers, Forge, in order to enlist him to create an insanely destructive weapon for her to use. Now, the way that this conversation is presented is really well done. Um, at this point... We don't know what Mystique's uh, plans are, right? We might assume that this weapon that Mystique is requesting to be made is meant to, I don't know, burn Krakoa to the ground? Hmm? Hmm? Now, the philosophical bits of this dialogue um, as to what a weapon truly is might just be a little bit too clever to sound like actual words of dialogue that would actually come out of any human's mouth. Uh, the point here is well taken, though. Forge talks about weapons and technology that, in and of themselves, they don't have a moral constitution, right? Weapons are weapons. Technology is technology. It's all about the end user, or just the plain user, the operator. That's the one who has a uh, sort of a moral constitution, can be good or evil or whatever. Now, Forge, he suggests that he can make a matter-antimatter collider. Now, this could devastate 50 to 100 miles with a just a huge gravitational pull. Now, here, Mystique reveals that her target is not Krakoa, but the Orcus Forge. Now, Forge understands, and he comments on how Orcus is made up of some of the greatest minds in science and technology, 
but they've got mutant extinction on their minds, so uh, it's not a good thing. He then asked Mystique to take a stab at guessing what the worst weapon he'd ever built was. She doesn't know, so she so he tells her. He says that it was the gun that turned the mutants into them. Now, Forge did create a gun that was able to take away mutant powers, and for a while, storms were actually taken away from her. Uh, this is probably around the time of uh, like the life-death era, I believe, uh, the late 100s of uh, Uncanny X-Men. This might be what he's referring to here. It might be literal. Or maybe it's just a broader statement, uh, simply warning of what technology can do in the wrong hands, right? Uh, maybe this act in and of itself is what turns the mutants into the bad guys, right? We don't know. Whatever the case, Forge says he'll do it, and the weapon will be ready in a few weeks. Now, we jump from here to, assumably, a few weeks later. We're in the present. Now, Mystique is at the house of M, getting ready to try and take out Orcus with that matter-antimatter gimmick. She explains that it will, in essence, create a miniature black hole, which will only last long enough to wipe out the Orcus Forge before collapsing in on itself. Magneto questions the severity of this option here. Kind of goes into, you know, uh, you know, killing a fly with a bazooka sort of territory. And Magneto is also kind of a dick here. Um, he and Xavier will both be dicks here. Uh, Mystique compares this mission to removing a cancer. You know, like, you can't just chip bits and pieces off, right? You have to go for the root. You have to take it all out. Otherwise, it's just going to come back. Now, Xavier says, <laughs> basically, he couldn't care less what the methods are here, so long as Nimrod is prevented from coming online. So kill people, don't kill people, kill everybody, kill nobody. He doesn't care. Just keep Nimrod from coming online. Mystique glibly responds that she'll, you know, do all the dirty work to keep Xavier's hands clean, and then she mocks his leadership skills. Magneto tells her to watch her tone and warns that she could be replaced by any monster currently residing on Krakoa, which, again, he's a dick. Uh, Mystique confirms with X and M that once this mission is successfully completed, Irene, that is Destiny, will be fast-tracked to the front of the Resurrection queue. Magneto says, of course. Yeah, that's the deal, right? We wouldn't welch on a deal. Xavier follows up with the statement that, uh, at this point, the only thing that'll stop them from bringing Irene back would be Mystique's own failure. Hmm. Now, let's talk about this scene while it's still fresh in our minds here. I, I, I don't want to wait until the end for this one, because this is, a, this is an interesting scene. Because if we look at this scene from a post-Hox-Pox, Mora's, Krakoa point of view, it's great, right? We've been literally looking forward to this since X-Men number 6, 14 friggin' issues ago. We wanted to see follow-up on this. Right? Uh, that whole Mystique issue was wonderful. One of the greatest issues we've gotten since this new direction. But to this point, we've gotten no follow-up on it. Right? So, in that regard, I really enjoyed this. But, if we move from the micro to the macro, and we look at the scene as an overall piece of X-Men history, that's where the wheels kind of come off a little bit, for me at least. Mystique really ought not be so gullible, right? How she doesn't realize that Xavier and Magneto are basically screwing with her, stringing her along to do their dirty work, that feels wildly out of character, right? I do understand the desperation that uh, Mystique has here. She wants, she wants her wife back. She wants, uh, you know, she wants everything right. And so maybe she's got some blinders on. Maybe she's got a little bit of tunnel vision, seeing this is her only option. But at the same time, 
out of all the characters who have been brought back, shouldn't she start asking, like, why Destiny is a special case? It kind of feels a little too convenient and uh, written to only to facilitate this story. I mean, let's look at the rest of the resurrectees here. Not the rest of them, but some of them. The Shadow King, Amal Farouk, Legion, <laughs> any number of highly dangerous mutants who have royally screwed with the X-Men over the past 60 years of publication. You know, some major league threats here. Now, Destiny, by comparison, was basically a benign presence, right? Shouldn't Mystique be questioning this? Shouldn't she be like, eh, it's weird. On the other side here, shouldn't Xavier and Magneto be a little bit more wary of Mystique's obedience here? Uh, she's been shown as being very slippery, very smart, quite desperate right now. Doesn't have a whole lot to lose. Shouldn't Magneto and Xavier view her as something of a threat here? Or at least a tad bit temperamentally dangerous, instead of just as a plaything that'll just do what they say and not question anything? It seems very bizarre. I don't know. Let's move on. Double page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Mystique, Professor X, Forge, Magneto, Dr. Grega, Omega Sentinel, and Dr. Devo. Or Director Devo, one or the other. We resume, and we're back at the Orcus Forge. Now, Dr. Aaliyah Gregor is presenting that red gem to a small crowd of beekeepers and scientists. Omega Sentinel and Devo look on from above. Now, we saw her find this gem way back in X-Men number one. Now, she's basically imprinted her dead husband's life onto this gem. Now, before her on a table lays a Nimrod body. She describes the gem as a crystalline shell, wherein she grew holographic memories of her husband. With it, she could restore his essence back into a body. Hmm. Sound familiar? Maybe a little? Hmm. And so, she implants this gem into Nimrod. Everything glows red for a moment, and then... Bingo Bango, Gregor's husband speaks from the Nimrod body. He feels strange, and uh, understandably so. He sits up, emits another burst of pink energy, and then realizes what's gone down. He knows that he died. What's more, he knows that his wife brought him back. He gently caresses her face as he says this. Does that sound familiar? A spouse doing whatever they can to bring their other half back from the dead? Hmm, okay. Now, the beekeepers are astounded, and they realize that the game just changed. Like, really, everything just changed. Humanity has uh, basically cracked the code on a version of the Resurrection Protocols here. More or less, anyway. Now, Erasmus, the husband, he beholds his new Nimrodian body and considers it a wonder. He laments the fact that, since he's no longer flesh and blood, he won't be able to give Alia a child. And she tells him not to worry about that. Now, this oddly touching scene is then interrupted because, you see, Nimrod realizes that one of these beekeepers is actually a mutant. And so the jig is up. Mystique is revealed. And so she starts firing at Nimrod to buy herself a moment to engage that black hole bomb, which she does. She drops it and runs. Karima What's-Her-Face demands that the beekeepers get Devo to safety. Nimrod then duplicates himself into two one of whom can take care of this bomb, another who can pursue and hopefully catch Mystique. Aaliyah sees what's about to happen. She figures that Erasmus is going to sacrifice himself to save the Orcus Forge again. And, well, that's exactly what happens. He duplicates again, absorbs the black hole bomb, and blips deep into space where it explodes without hurting anybody on the forge. 
The dupe that remains with Aaliyah is, well, just Nimrod. No longer Erasmus, a cold, unfeeling, inhuman Nimrod with none of Erasmus's behaviors, memories, or uh, morality. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go. Now, this other Nimrod dupe catches up to Mystique. It chokes her out and then blasts her back through the Krakoan portal, and she lands limp and lifeless on the floor of the House of M. We jump back to the Forge, where Director Devo asks Karima What's-Her-Face how Gregor is handling this turn of events, you know, losing her husband for a second time. And we learn that uh, Gregor is uh, inconsolable. Devo understands, but he's sure she'll get over it, just as he did when he was in a similar situation. We don't know what that situation is yet. just yet. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. Maybe we did find out and I just forgot. Who knows? He then makes a comment about how they are now feared and hated by mutants, and he has a good chuckle about this turn of events. We jump back to Krakoa, where Mystique emerges from a gold ball. Magneto and Xavier are there to greet her, and Mags asks what happened at the forge. Raven tells him that he ought to know everything from her cerebro backup. Magneto's all, yeah, I do know. I just want to hear you say it. And so she does. She failed, and Nimrod is online. X and M are all damn it all and decide that they're going to have to move on to the next phase of whatever their plan is. But first, of course, we have a fabulous fashion show we need to take time out for. Mystique asks what this means for Irene. You know, what does this mean for my wife? Xavier, blankly and coldly, looks back at her and replies, What about her? Dick. Now, this takes us to the wrap-up, which retells Destiny's prophecy from the end of X-Men number 6, wherein she tells Raven to bring her back, and if she cannot, to burn this place to the ground. Now, as we're getting these bits of prophecy, we see Xavier and Magneto entering Mora's No Place. There, Mora is reading one of Destiny's diaries, which are, of course, those things that were the main motivation for Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men until they completely forgot about them. And that's where we leave it. But we do have a uh, sort of an info page. It's a two-page spread here that says, This Fall, Inferno. So, uh, that clears that up a little bit, perhaps. But that's where we end the issue. Next episode, as mentioned, finally the Hellfire Gala, so hopefully we can stop talking about it. But for now, let's talk about um, the penultimate issue of X-Men here, which might be, uh, as we talked about with X-Factor, this might be kind of the swan song for this volume, right? Because next issue will, of course, be part of the gala. And I'm assuming that uh, the next issue of X-Men will be more about introducing the next team than uh, really closing anything out from this volume. So this might serve as our... You know, our cutoff point here, uh, with next issue being more of a, a bridge between two volumes. Now, the frustrating thing about this issue is that it was really good, right? Um, which shows us that we could have had a lot of good issues of this volume of X-Men, and we just didn't. Because we were, I don't know if we were setting the table, if we were world-building or what, but uh, everything kind of felt half-baked, except for three, three or so issues of this volume. Uh, issues 6, 7, and now 20 That actually feel like continuations from Hoxpox Not that everything had to be, but I mean, if we're doing 20 issues and only 3 have to do As a flagship book, only 3 have to do with setting up Or following up on the premise of the entire line I don't know, it's a little bit frustrating Especially in this day and age where Comics are expensive And Marvel still has a long way to go in... 
establishing that they're going to fully back the X-Men after shoving them in a corner for the past decade plus. So they have a lot of goodwill to build here, and I don't know if such a slow burn story is the best way to go about that. I mean, sure, you've got me because I'm an idiot who buys everything, you know, but you need to worry about the people who will only come in when it's event time or when it's, uh, when there's good buzz and you got to make sure each and every issue of your flagship book is something that a potential newcomer or a potential lapsed fan will get something out of. And I feel like this is kind of a double-edged sword here because as out of these 20 issues, I, like I just said, three of them are relevant. But at the same time, those three might be the most difficult for a new reader to get into. So it's, it's very much a double-edged sword. And uh, honestly, I don't have any better ideas. So I should probably just stop talking. Now let's talk about the issue. We have comparisons introduced to us here, right? Nimrod and the Resurrection Protocols. This I didn't see coming. Um, maybe I should have, but I didn't see this coming, where Gregor has figured out a way to put consciousness uh, of her lost loved one into the Nimrod. I mean, the title of this issue is Lost Loves, right? And that is on multiple levels. Now, is this just another piece of the post-humanity puzzle? Could very well be. Can we see the uh, Krakoan Resurrection Protocols as something of a precursor to this? Possibly. So this might be another instance where the X-Men are the architects of their own demise, in a way. And uh, that's not the only thing in this issue that, uh, that relates to that, and we'll get to that in just a bit. Another really cool comparison we get here is between Dr. Gregor and Mystique herself. They're both uh, desperate to bring back their lost love, and it would seem that they're both doomed to have to go on without them. I think this is a really cool sort of a zig instead of a zag here. Um... The way Nimrod is brought online initially, I, I think, I mean, Nimrod has been presented as uh, one of, if not the, big bad of this entire era. And so when we see him come back, and he has a human personality, and is gently caressing the face of his lost love, um, it's a subversion of what we might have expected, you know? We expect Nimrod to sit up from the table and just say, mutant, exterminate, and that's about it. Right? Here he has compassion. Here he has human feelings. Which brings us to the next thing, wherein the mutants are architects of their own uh, destruction. We killed that one, right? Uh, the, the Erasmus Nimrod is dead. And so the only Nimrod left is one without any humanity, without any sort of moral compass, one that is just about eradicating mutants. So, had Mystique not intervened here, had the mutants not gone back to the Orcus Forge to try and take it out, we could have a kindler, gentler Nimrod going forward. We can have an Erasmus Nimrod who has been shown time and again throughout this run as being someone who is, at, at their core, uh, I don't know if we want to say a good or bad person, because we don't know him quite that well, but we know that he has, uh, he has a constitution, and we know that he is, uh, he is giving of self. He's altruistic. He will do what he has to do to save those around him. Those are not, you know, those are not bad qualities. And that could have been the Nimrod we had going forward, where this is a Nimrod that could have been potentially reasoned with, but he's gone. 
he was sucked into the black hole. He, he zipped out into space and uh, was engulfed in the matter-antimatter deal, and all that remains is Nimrod. So uh, this is just another instance of the self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, the mutants are always destined to lose. The thing that Mora is trying to uh, circumvent, but keeps, no matter how far they pull away, they wind up pulling into it. It's, uh, it's interesting. I really, really dig this. Uh, we also get a little bit of clarity on what Inferno is. Um, all I knew was that it was a uh, teaser. I've stayed away from as many uh, websites as possible. I don't want to know what this is going to be about. Of course, we've talked about things it could be about. I think we all assumed it was going to be about Mystique burning the place down, but uh, there was a question of whether or not the Inferno of old was going to be revisited in some sort of way, uh, form or fashion, with, uh, you know, kidnapped children, stuff like that. But here, with the, uh, the juxtaposition of the scenes, I think we can probably assume that this is a uh, definitely going to be a Mystique and Destiny-centric sort of story here. And I tell you what, it was cool seeing uh, Mora reading Destiny's Diaries here. The Destiny's Diaries gimmick that was introduced um, around the time of Extreme X-Men, or right before Extreme X-Men, I believe we talked about it during one of our Merry X-Lap specials, uh, the 100-page monster uh, that Chris Claremont left the X-Men books on, or left the flagship titles on before he went to launch Extreme, where the team of like Storm and Rogue and Gambit and... Beast and Psylocke, a bunch of people. <laughs> they all went and formed their own team in order to track down the rest of Destiny's Diaries, which I thought was a really cool sort of uh, premise. And then they forgot about it. They just didn't really do much on it. I thought that was going to be a really fun thing. Though, looking back on it now, um, I don't know how you play that out. You know, had Extreme X-Men been all about Destiny's Diaries, what's your endgame? Right? What is the end game there? Is it you find out everything that's going to happen and you, you, you know, you become, you know, Biff Tannen in Back to the Future Two? I mean, what is it? Maybe it's just something that's better, like in the back of our minds, as a as, an, as a possibility or an opportunity than something that actually winds up playing out on the page. So, but I think that's probably all I have to say about this issue. Um, Xavier and Magneto, absolute jerks during this issue. To the point where I know we've talked about how some of these characters are acting out of character. This was even a step further than that to me. It felt very, very bizarre. Um, they're very unlikable. It's it's weird. Uh, the art here, uh, Francesco Mobili, um, it, while feeling kind of like a fill-in because we didn't know who the artist was going to be on this, turned in some really spectacular work here. Uh, no complaints about the art. The art was very, very good. I went in expecting... You know, rushed fill-in work uh, But, no, very, very good stuff So yeah, I think This is, gets a rare um, Thumbs up and endorsement For the flagship book from me For, you know, whatever that's worth Which is uh, very little But yeah, I think that's all I got to say about this issue And uh, before we head out Let's hop into the mailbag here We got another Damien double shot From Off the Beaten Path the first book he discusses is Modoc Head Cases, Head Games, Head whatever the hell it was, uh, number three. He says, Hi, Chris. I felt a pang of guilt when you said you had no letters in this episode. I'm slowly but surely catching up, currently only about 30 episodes behind. No, 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 don't feel bad. It, uh, it happens sometimes. It, it's weird how 
Uh, we get a lot of mail on the show, but like on days where we don't, it's like I don't get any from anybody. <laughs> like usually, usually it'll be like, oh well, I got one from somebody, then maybe didn't get one from somebody the next day, but got one from somebody else. But then there are those days where just like none come in. It's very, very bizarre. And I mean, since it does happen so rarely, it's probably not something I should ever kind of complain about. So I apologize if I came across as complaining about that during this episode. Uh, Damien continues. It's a shame that I didn't enjoy this issue as much as you did. It ultimately comes down to my fandom for the Dark Rain spinoff, Modoc Rain Delay by Ryan Dunleavy, which I bought off the shelf back in 2009. I love that book as it skewers the then-current Marvel Universe and does so in such a delightful manner. It's probably a little bit LOL random for you, because it is the source of the Modoc Demands Pancakes panel, but I love it. That special features Modoc's parents and therefore contradicts this issue of Head Games. I personally feel that continuity should be maintained with obscure comedy one-shots. And yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. I do remember the Modoc Demands Pancakes thing, and yeah, I'm sure I rolled my eyes at it when I saw it. But yeah, I didn't know that uh, that that series or that one-shot had uh, established any sort of backstory for Modoc that was um, contradicted here. And I agree with you. As a uh, as an addict to lore and continuity, I, I don't want to see things contradicted. I, I want to see even in the most obscure things here. I, I talk about like uh, you know the aim toothpaste PSAs. I want those things in continuity. I want <laughs> I don't want anything in those sort of books. The Halloween specials, the uh, the Spider Man uh, newspaper strip. I want everything on the same continuity. So I, I can totally uh, totally sympathize <laughs> with uh, you perhaps not enjoying this one quite as much since it does. Contradict what came before Damien continues I did enjoy the cutout plot twists And the skid stuff This weirdly segues into your discussion of our first X book My first US one was X Factor number 9 Which features skids quite prominently And I enjoyed it so much I went back the following day And bought classic X-Men number 1 Of course I've been reading Marvel UK For several years before I discovered US comics And I think my first issue was Thor and the X-Men number 31 Which was cover dated November 16, 1983 making me nine years old at the time. It features a reprint of X-Men number 27 by Roy Thomas and Warner Roth, and features the mimic. Thor and the X-Men was my first superhero book, and I got it solely for the X-Men. In fact, I don't think I even read the Thor strip. Oh, that's awesome. I love hearing these kind of stories. I love finding out about our the roots and the, the origins of our fandom and just like the weird things that we pick up and the reasons why we pick them up. Um, I, I think I've talked about this before. The first comic that I bought with my own money was either issue 8 or 9 of the Vision and the Scarlet Witch miniseries. And it had like Toad on the cover with like a holographic... He was like in a chair with like a holographic body around him or something, like with a hand reaching out. Don't know why I bought that issue. But I did, and I'll, I'll never forget it. And um, also, good on you for not reading Thor. Thor is boring. <laughs> Thor is so dull to me. I remember, um, you know, of course, when you talk about Thor, it's like, oh, you got to read the Simonson stuff. You got to read the Walt, read the Walt Simonson stuff. So I bought one of the. Uh, it's not an omnibus. It was before the omnibuses were a thing, but a uh, a big collection of the Walt Simonson Thor, and I tried it so many times because. You guys know me. I always second-guess my own um, tastes and my own opinions. I always think I'm wrong. When I don't like something, I'm sure that it's probably one of the best things ever. And when I do like something, I'm like, eh, nobody else is going to dig this. So when I'm reading uh, these Thor issues, and I'm like, I just can't get into this, my immediate thought is like, I must be, you know, I must be broken. 
you know, everybody else loves this and I don't. I must be just a broken unit here. So I just kept trying and trying and trying and it felt like such a chore. And I think I ultimately made it like three or four issues into it. And it was just like, I can't continue. <laughs> I just can't continue. Uh, Damien wraps up with, I suppose that makes that I, that means that I'm edging on 38 years of loving the X-Men. And it's a... Uh, Time is a son of a bitch, isn't it? <laughs> Time goes way too fast here. It's so it's so crazy to think about um, how, you know, like you go back to 1983. The X-Men were 20 years old at that point, which probably felt like forever, right? When I started, the X-Men were coming on, the, uh, we're just a couple years shy of their 30th anniversary. And I remember thinking like, wow, 30 years, this, this book's been around forever, and, I mean, that was 30 years ago now, just about. It's insane to consider just how much time goes by and how things change and how, th- how some things stay the same, like, like these comics that are... We get a monthly stamp on these comics, then they follow us through our lives, and it's, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Uh, next, Damien's talking about Runaways number 34. He says, This is definitely a good comic, but a very difficult one to comment on. I really like Wolverine written like this. It really reminds me of the Wolverine First Class series by Fred Van Lenthe, which featured Wolverine training, training Kitty. Logan makes a very good es- exasperated uncle. I do feel like I'm missing lots of important details because I've never previously read a runaway story. It feels like it contains lots for a regular reader, and the art is delightful too. And you're right, this is a very fun book. I even went and bought and read the issue, uh, Runaways, Runaways number 36, I guess it would be, after the, uh, after the Wolverine guest appearance was gone. I, I actually picked up the next issue and read it. Thought it was okay. Um, didn't love it. Uh, that was the issue that in the solicits, like, wouldn't give us any information because it proclaimed itself as being the greatest Marvel comic of the year. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, perhaps if you were following Runaways, you know, I can't even say that. If you were following, Runa- following Runaways religiously, it still wouldn't be the best comic of the year. Uh, there's a neat little reveal in it, which went over my head. You know, I didn't get the importance of it. Uh, I, I assume if you were reading Runaways uh, religiously, you would have uh, gotten a little bit more out of that reveal. But uh, I only bring it up to say that I, yes, I stuck with this this book. I don't know if I'm going to stick with it forever, but... Uh, I was interested enough to pick up the next issue and just see where it was headed. Uh, these characters are fun. The art's great. The uh, the writing is is really, really good as well. It's a fun story. You're probably not missing much if you wait for Marvel Unlimited to put it up. You know, it's not. I don't think it's something you need to read immediately, especially with you know how big all of our uh, comics backlogs are at this point. But uh, when it does pop up on Unlimited, I I'd recommend checking it out. At least give it a little flip through. It's uh, it's not bad stuff. Now, you mentioned the First Class series, Wolverine First Class here, which reminds me of a little bit of a peek behind the curtain here, because uh, <laughs> it's caused me quite a bit of turmoil, these, uh, these First Class series. If you're following along with the channel, you'll know that in our off time from doing the current year X-Men stuff, I'm doing a show called Essential X-Lapsed, where I'm taking a look at everything from the Silver Age, starting with X-Men number one, Working our way forward here, we're going to have non-X-Books getting involved when the X-Men are crossing over into things. we got a couple of crossovers actually coming up the next time we uh, we take that stint. But uh, I considered trying to do it, like, chronologically. So importing the first-class stories 
into like in between pages or in between issues of the original run here. So like we'd have you know X Men number one, two, and three, and then X Men First Class number one and two, or however however it worked out. And it just made my head spin. <laughs> so I uh, ultimately decided against it. I, I th- still think it's a cool idea to do something like that. Just have a uh, like an absolute chronological uh, compilation of of the X Men, their 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 life story in a sense here. So I might revisit that, and I might take a page out of Marvel's own numbering scheme to do so. So, like if I find out that say X Men Unli- X Men Unlimited no. X-Men First Class number one takes place between issues three and four of X-Men. I'll, you know, I'll call it, like, Essential X-Lapsed number 3.1, you know, and then we'll just stick it in there and uh, fill in all the blanks here, which it's something I also considered doing for uh, the John Byrne X-Men Hidden Year series if and when we get past, you know, the original 66 not exactly sure how that'll go, if it'll go at all, um, or if we'll jump from issue 66 straight into maybe some of the Beast Amazing Adventure stories where he gets fuzzy, maybe some of the uh, some of the other crossovers, uh, the introduction of Wolverine perhaps in, in Hulk, uh, then go into Giant Size, or if, or if we'll work it where we do some of uh, the X-Men Hidden Years series with these other appearances sporadically spread throughout and then into Giant Size... I mean, we got plenty of time before we get there. I mean, we're only up to issue or episode seven at this point, so we got time. <laughs> we certainly have time. So, if anybody out there is thinking into the future, let me know your thoughts on that sort of thing. If this is uh, if this is something you'd like to see me do, the X Men: The Hidden Years thing, and also trying to implement some of the first class stuff into where it would fit in continuity. But that will do it for the mailbag. Thank you so much, Damien, for writing in to talk about those off-the-beaten-path issues. As I said before, it means a lot when folks will read things that uh, they don't normally read in order to keep up with the show. That uh, I can't put into words what that means to me. So thank you so much. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways, and I would hope you, you'd try to. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can go to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com for blog posts and show notes. You can join the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie comics listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it every day, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, all that happy stuff. It would really, really help me out. But that's going to do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day, and uh, till next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.